Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, as we record this podcast, we are just a few days away from one of my favorite holidays, Thanksgiving, and I'm curious to know how you'll be celebrating up in Boston. Yeah, no, I, I'm up here in Boston. I do have the week off for work, which is nice, but I'm taking a well-earned uh, staycation for Thanksgiving. I'm doing a little friends, a little Friendsgiving with some people that uh, I'm friends with up here on Thursday, but otherwise just chilling, catching up on some movies. Uh, I've been watching a lot of movies the past couple weeks, and I've got quite a few on my slate for the next nine and nine days or so. And then also getting to catch up on some other pop culture stuff that I've been a little bit behind on as I've, you know, nose to the grindstone, which I'm sure you know well up, you know, down there in law school. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, it seems it's weird now that, that uh, mock trial season is on hiatus, moot court is on hiatus. It's like I, I don't know what to do with myself. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I have exams coming up. Uh, those are kind of important as well. But I got to ask, since you mentioned your, your Friendsgiving, are you cooking, or what is your uh, what's your go to dish for Thanksgiving? My go to dish, yeah. So, so yes, and we are cooking. Uh, I do enjoy <laughs> cooking. My my job doesn't always allow for me to cook regularly, but uh, yeah. I do I do enjoy cooking. I think, well, in terms of Thanksgiving dishes, my favorite is always and forever will be stuffing. I love turkey stuffing. It's my favorite yeah, part of Thanksgiving. Yeah, one of my favorites as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for I think the menu, I was looking at the menu. We kind of collaborated on it the other day, and we're doing turkey stuffing. Uh, mashed potatoes, some charred Brussels sprouts with Ooh, bal- with a balsamic good. reduction. That's like the fancier dish. Yeah. Uh, pumpkin pie. We also have, I think, a rhubarb tart they were doing. Okay. Uh, so yeah, a nice little variety. Maybe some mixed vegetables as well. Kind of more, yeah, more that, generic. That sounds, uh, that sounds delicious. I had my friends giving the other night and uh, we had a lot of tasty stuff. Yeah, uh, for sure. A lot, a lot of a lot of carbs. There were there were no green vegetables. There was no green bean casserole, which personally I was happy to see because I'm not a green bean fan. Um, yeah. So you're going you're going to be back in Chattanooga with your family. Yes. What what are your yeah, guys' plans actually, for the Thanksgiving? Well, I'm heading back tomorrow. Um, I mean, our, I think we'll just do our usual routine. We we'll have my grandmother come over on Thanksgiving to our house and just hang out and and eat food all day, watch football. You know how it goes. The the traditional Thanksgiving stuff, nothing, uh, nothing too radical, but it'll be good to be home and, and chill for a few weeks because it's been a busy last month and a half. Yeah, you've been you've been on the road quite a bit, from what I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just got back from Philadelphia last weekend. Um, our teams did great. Our eight team got fifth place out of thirty nine teams, uh, which Amazing. is awesome. Um, and then I actually flew back early on Sunday before the tournament was over because I had a uh, a moot court competition that I had to make it back in time for, um, and, and was competing in that throughout the week. So it's been quite the gauntlet over the past few weeks, but, uh, it's been really fun. You know, I, I enjoy staying busy and, and, uh, but that being said, it will be nice to have this time to relax. And, you know, not, not for you to be too humble. I think you did quite well in that moot court competition, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, I finished second, um, overall, um, I, I won the best brief as well. So like the, there's the written portion and then which is the brief and then there's the oral argument portion. Um, and so I had the best brief overall in the competition, made it to the final round, um, went up against uh, another one of my classmates. And it was a very t- very close, very tough round. Um, and she came out on top. It was it was uh, again a very very uh, well fought round, a very well earned victory by her. Um, and 
Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a great experience to, to make it all that way. You know, I made it to the semifinals last year, so um, I was glad to kind of get over that hump this year and, and make it to the finals and get to compete. You know, in front of a lot a lot of uh, people in the school um, in, in the big auditorium. So it, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome, glad to hear it. Yeah, but before we uh, we, we feast on our hearty Thanksgiving dinners, um, we do have some movies to discuss today. Um, quite a few, in fact, I think we'll, we'll be going through. Um, later on, we'll be putting our magnifying glasses up to the Melissa McCarthy, Richard E. Grant biopic, Can You Ever Forgive Me? But first, it's the latest entry in the Wizarding World franchise, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Directed by David Yates and with a script by J.K. Rowling herself, The Crimes of Grindelwald is, of course, the sequel to 2016's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. This movie continues the story of Newt Scamander, the magizoologist who will write the textbook that Harry Potter will use decades later at Hogwarts. As the film opens, Newt, played by Eddie Redmayne, has been banned from international travel in light of the events of the first film. But when Hogwarts professor Albus Dumbledore, played by Jude Law, asks Newt to travel to Paris and track down pure-blood wizard Credence, played by Ezra Miller, Newt is forced to get the band back together, so to speak, including Dan Fogler's Jacob and Catherine Watterson's Tina. The only problem? Credence is also being hunted by Grindelwald, played by Johnny Depp, as a dark wizard who wants to use Credence's powers to kill Dumbledore. Now, I'll be honest, Scott, I don't know if I fully understood all of the plot elements that I just described, even after watching the movie, but I know that you're a huge Harry Potter fan, so I'd love to start out with your general impressions of this latest wizarding saga. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that your (laughs) consternation about some of the plot elements and, and how intricately woven the tale is is understandable when i was watching the movie i actually saw it. it's the first time i've seen a movie on a thursday night in a long time i got to see yeah. it on you know preview night so to speak as as I, as I believe they call it now i'm not sure but i saw it i at a high level i really i did really enjoy this movie i think that this franchise in terms of fantastic beasts in the in the larger wizarding world universe i think that fantastic beasts in some ways, is almost more enjoyable to me than the Harry Potter franchise, and the, and the reason I, yeah, no, and the reason I don't think they're necessarily better movies than the Harry Potter movies, but I think that I enjoy them more because of the visual effects, because of the, of how much Fantastic Beasts and now its sequel leans into using magic, something that I don't think Harry Potter, uh, that that Harry Potter movies themselves did very much. Like it, it was much more about you know this teenage kid in high school. I mean, to, to be really honest, in middle school and high school, yeah. than it was about magic. Of course, it's set in this world with magic in it. But I think that I find that Fantastic Beasts, the first movie, and then even more so the sequel, leans into the magical side of the universe more. And that's something that I really enjoy just from a, all right, turn my brain off, lean back, and really just kind of feast on some eye candy. Because I think the visual effects sure. are, are wonderful. I think the costume design and hairstyling, all wonderful stuff in this movie. Uh, when you dig a little bit deeper, however, when you get into the plot, when you get into how things are kind of pieced together, the, I think the first movie, and I know that you only saw this for the fir- first movie the first time uh, on Wednesday this past week in preparation for seeing The Crimes of Grindelwald, but the first movie does okay. It keeps it together. You, you might wonder what the po- like why the, the plot even came together in the first movie at all. Like The premise of it seems a little bit strange. And you get a little bit more background here in the second movie about why the first movie happened. You get this snippet that you know Dumbledore was basically involved with it and kind of pulling the strings, uh, so to speak. 
But then I, I do think this movie has a really hard time keeping the plot together. I think that there are times where I, as someone who really prides uh, myself on my Harry Potter lore and understanding just about every nook and cranny of this universe that J.K. Rowling has written thus far. Obviously, this this should be included. This is canon. This is written by her. But this movie, to me, when you pull on a couple threads, the, the seams kind of unravel, I think, in terms of the plot. I think that, to not get into too many spoilers, as of yet, I think that there are some serious liberties taken uh, and some assumptions made of, of your background knowledge in the universe. There are some deep cuts, particularly around Dumbledore's uh, history, which, honestly, I can't remember how deep it goes in the seventh or eighth movies. I mean, I know how bo- deep the books go, which is what my knowledge base relies upon and, and why I was maybe a little bit more comfortable than a lot of than you might be uh, watching this movie in terms of what the what depth it was pulling from. But there are even points where this movie goes that are a little bit out of touch with my understanding of the universe, which leads me to believe that it's a little bit out of touch with the Harry Potter universe, strangely. And, and that's maybe a little bit disrespectful for me to say, as, as this is written by J.K. Rowling. It's, it is her universe. She's the one writing it. But uh, the plot is not good. It's not strong. But that being said, I still enjoy this movie because, you know, I honestly, I don't walk into this movie expecting the plot to be something to write home about. It's not why this franchise is still going. But that being said, I thought some of the acting performances were still solid. Uh, You know, the character development is a little bit iffy, and we can maybe dive into that a little bit later. But uh, ultimately, the reason you should go and see this movie is because how wonderful it is just to soak it all in, I think. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not surprised to hear you say that you did enjoy it because I think that for me, my, my reaction walking out of it was that, well, this is something that is for big Harry Potter fans. Like those are the people who are going to get the most enjoyment out of it. I think, um, and not being one of those people, um, I did not particularly enjoy the film. Um, I would have to say like, if I had to, to describe it, I like, I'm a casual Harry Potter fan. Like I would probably say that I'm a Harry Potter fan on the level of how I'm a Marvel fan. Maybe I might, I might be slightly more of a Marvel fan, but in the in the sense that I've watched all of the movies, in the sense that I've watched all of the movies, um, and I've enjoyed all of them. Like just you know, just as I said with the MCU, like I've seen all of these movies, I've enjoyed most of them, but. Like, I, I haven't seen them multiple times. Like, I'm not really in touch with all of the lore, with all of the mythology of it. Um, because one thing is I never read the Harry Potter books as a kid, actually. Yeah. Um, so I think I would probably have more of a connection to it if I <laughs> did have a background in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's interesting hearing you describe what you enjoyed about this movie because I think that in some ways to look at it from the other side, like, the fact that it leans more into the magic and leans more into the special effects sort of goes away from what I liked about the Harry mm. Potter franchise, which is... Yeah, I kind of expected just, you to say that, too. Because right. like, knowing the kind of film lover that you are in terms of the, yeah. the, what grabs you about films, I, I'm not surprised by this. I think the, I mean, I think the human story in Harry Potter, to me, is the strongest part. Like, that is the most compelling part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you're describing of, the fact that it is about a boy in high school, ostensibly. Like, I like that it fuses this sort of coming of age element alongside the supernatural, you know, fantasy plot, because personally I'm not someone who gets into like hard fantasy, hard supernatural stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So having this human story to balance it out and sort of like weaving the idea of coming of age throughout this, you know, supernatural narrative um, 
it's something I really enjoyed. And I also really enjoyed the, like the darkness of some of these original films. Like my favorite movie in the Harry Potter series is probably the one which no one would say is their favorite movie. And that's the Deathly Hallows part one, um, uh-huh. which I think is probably the, the, darkest one in the series you could probably say and but actually yeah. that's one of the reasons i was excited to see this movie because it is directed by david gates who mm-hmm. directed deathly Hallows part one and who did sort of bring a darker edge to some of the harry potter i mean um, yeah other, he's other directed the last he yeah he's directed the last six movies i think i think he started right. starting with order of the phoenix i think he's right and goblet of fire order of the phoenix are two again two of the other best entries in the in the series i think but um i think that the fact that this movie leans so heavily into the magic and sort of the whimsical nature of all of it. You know, there are some dark moments. I mean, people get killed. I mean, that's not a spoiler to say that people get killed. But, like, to me, it was it was all just a little too trite for me. And like you said, when you peel back the layers, um, I don't think there's really a lot of substance to it. Mm-hmm. Or if there is, it's filling... The substance is filling in all of these really inside baseball details, which... Mm-hmm. Only people who are really ingrained in this universe are going to be able to pick up on, like, you know, obviously Lita Lestrange is a main character here, um, played by Zoe Kravitz. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lestrange, Lestrange is a name which is going to be familiar to anyone who's seen the Harry Potter movies. Um, I had, you know, I didn't have any basis in this character and, what, you know, what's her relation to everyone else in the Lestrange family. And, like, that's, doesn't, that's not really explained, like... Oh, it, it's I mean, not explained in the book. She's a, she's a new character. She never came up in the books. Okay, but but the fact that she does have mm-hmm. the last name of Lestrange, like you would expect some sort of, you know, this is another one of the things. Obviously, we know that there are more of these movies coming, and so I think that's another criticism of this movie is that it feels a little bit like filler. Like it's kind of we're kind of just getting us to the next movie. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of it's very exposition heavy, um, and I don't think that a lot of the exposition again is that easy to follow. Right. <laughs> but again, ultimately, I think my major complaints with it are. The fact that that human story is missing, I don't particularly feel connected to any of these characters. Mm-hmm. I think because they are so removed from, again, the, the human part of the, yeah. the wizarding world um, and, and really lean a lot heavier into the magic, which, yes, is portrayed you know, very captivatingly in, yep. in some of the set pieces. Um, I, I certainly won't deny that, but... I, I kind of just find my, found myself pretty bored, honestly, for a lot of the middle section of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, and to, and to your point about the middle section being boring, I think that the parts that are particularly awesome about this movie is, like, the opening scene. I think the opening... Like, when I saw the opening scene, I was like, oh, wow, like, this movie could be a lot better than I thought it was going to be yeah. holistically, because that opening scene is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, with, with Grindelwald escaping... Breaking out, being, yeah, being broken out. Of yeah, being broken... Yeah, by I'm I've already forgotten the name of the of yeah. the American that helps break him out, but he was kind of in the background of the first film, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, you start being introduced to these new characters. Oh, Aber- Abernathy's his name. That's right, Abernathy. Um, but you start being introduced to these new characters, and you you as the story develops for some of the you know returning characters to the, to the Fantastic Beasts franchise. You really, I just kind of found myself shaking my head on a lot of the character development, and to kind of tie up this kind of these general thoughts on what you were saying before we kind of maybe dive a little bit deeper on some different points. I think that if if you come to Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald looking for the human story, you're not going to be happy with what you find, and ultimately, I think that's okay. 
for me. But I I do understand with you know from your perspective, Scott, someone who's not you know from for me as someone who I mean I have no idea how many times I read the Harry Potter books as a kid. It was too many. Yeah. Uh, like even to the point where I would still reread them in college. I haven't reread them in a little while now, but but like I have no idea how many times I've read them. But but for me, it's just you know I came to this because this franchise offers me something that the original Harry Potter series did not, and that's more immersion in the magical aspect of this world. And I feel completely satisfied with the human story that Harry Potter gave me. And I'm satisfied with the magical story that Fantastic Beasts is currently giving me. Yeah, and I can absolutely see it from your perspective as well. Like, I know that there are millions, like no exaggeration to say, millions of people who feel the same way that you do about this franchise and who are probably going to find a lot to love in this movie. And I would not disparage anyone for you know, finding a lot to love in this movie. Just for me, I came into this looking for something different than Mm -hmm. what a lot of other people will be looking for. Um, And, you know, it it didn't work for me, but, you know, I'm not going to sit here and and rag on it because, like I said, I think a lot of people will enjoy the movie and I'm not going to tell you to not go see it if you are a big Harry Potter fan. It's just if you are looking for, like, a starting point obviously this is not the place to, to go oh yeah and even even if you're a casual fan like me mm-hmm. um someone who you know generally knows what's going on um yep. but you know is is not uh fully ingrained in this universe then i would probably say just wait for this movie to come out on vod if you even see it at all yeah and to that point i remember i texted you friday morning after i got you know after i had seen it thursday night and i was like Look, I know you haven't seen the first movie, and yeah. you know if you have the chance before watching this new film, like you need to see the first movie. You will not understand what's going on in it if you don't. And I, yeah, and I think that's totally fair. And I, I mean, I didn't. Again, I didn't particularly love the first movie either, but I at least was glad to have that basis going into it because yeah, they don't. I mean, they they don't spend any time catching you up. That's for sure. It yep. it kind of just picks up right where the first movie left off. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so let's, why don't we move into some of the performances now. Um, you know, obviously the original Harry Potter franchise, we have some actors who really became famous for their, uh, for their roles in the, in the Harry Potter franchise, people like Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson. Um, and here we have, again, so some more up-and-coming actors who I think uh, are trying to use um, this franchise as, as sort of a jumping-off point, as well as some bigger names. Um, let's start with Eddie Redmayne, who uh, plays the, the lead character once again of Newt Scamander. What do you think about his performance? Yeah, no, I know that you're not the biggest Eddie Redmayne fan of all time. I, I don't imagine yeah. that you will. You don't get. Well, I should say this: you won't. You don't give him too much love uh, in our in our you know everyday conversations when he comes up. But yeah. uh, I I like Eddie Redmayne for this role. I think that he really embodies the spirit of this character really well. You know, of course, I, no one before this movie came out really knew what this character was. But, you know, right. how what you learn about this character and then how Eddie Redmayne portrays this character, I think, matches really well. And, you know, as someone who likes Eddie Redmayne a little bit more than you do, although I wouldn't say that I'm, like, an Ed, Eddie Redmayne super fan by any stretch of the imagination, I think that he does a really good job showing his range in this movie. Because, you know, Newt's commander is an awkward guy. You know, he's someone who... Yeah. who you know, he, he is an incredible magizoologist. He, he is incredible with what he's able to accomplish and his open-mindedness and uh, towards you know, magical creatures in general. But he can be very abrasive as a personality. He can come off the wrong way. 
And the Eddie, the fact that Eddie Redmayne can capture that so well, and in my mind, is is impressive because I don't think it's an easy feat. And you know, I I have no idea what Eddie Redmayne's like in real life, but I assume that he is more interpersonally warm than Newt Scamander is. But I love him. I think that he's a great kind of embodiment of Hufflepuff in this movie. I think it's a house that gets a lot of gets had gotten a bad rap in the original Harry Potter movies and and also in the books. But I, something, I, as a Hufflepuff, I agree. Yeah, and and I think that he he gives a good name to Hufflepuffs in in my opinion because ultimately he has a lot of really redeeming qualities, and I think you do root for him. I'm looking at my Hufflepuff scarf actually as uh, <laughs> as we're recording this, but um, yeah. So for me, you know, you point out the character is a little bit awkward, <laughs> and I think that I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. But for me, the performance that Eddie Redmayne gives it kind of just makes it feel like like. You, I, I didn't feel like it was a natural awkwardness. I felt like I, I, I could see someone pretending to be awkward. And I think, like, there's all these sort of affectations that they give to the character. Like, he never looks anyone in the eye, really. Like, he's always just, like, looking out of the corner of his eyes, and his eyes are really shifty, and, like, he kind of hunches over and stuff when he walks. And it's like, to me, when I see it, it's like the filmmakers are just screaming at me like, oh, look, he's quirky. You know, he's quirky. And so I like I didn't really get that, like, level of abrasiveness, I think, that you're supposed to get, like you were talking about. Um, because for me, it's kind of it was kind of just a one-note performance of Eddie Redmayne trying to be this kind of nebbishy guy. Um, and, like, he's likable, yes, but I wanted that other dimension that you were talking about, and I, I guess I didn't really get it because... I don't know. For, for me, Eddie Redmayne is not a great actor for playing an abrasive character. Like he, he generally plays very likable, um, you know, characters that the audience wants to engage with. And so for me, like I, I again, I didn't really pick up on that other dimension that I kind of wanted from the character. I, I guess I see what you're saying, but I think I do disagree in that he's yeah. Eddie. I uh, I don't know how much of this is Eddie Redmayne. I think Newt Scamander is this person, or my read on him, is that he knows that he's awkward, he knows that he is this way, and there are moments where he really tries to overcome that. Like, there are, there are effortful moments in this movie where you see him trying to be more warm. You know, his relationship with Tina, for example, you know, where he's trying to, like, build that bridge. And some of that, I think, I think that plot line can be a little bit frustrating at times, and maybe we'll get into that later. But I think that in, in those moments is where you see the depth, where you're like, I believe it a little bit more in terms of the abrasiveness because you like you can see in his interactions with Theseus, for example, his brother, that it's a little bit more abrasive, you know. But when you see these moments with people like Lita, who you know he clearly still has feelings for, but obviously the time the time has passed in terms of that relationship, and you, you're aware of that. But you see him in those moments try to like be someone not necessarily who he's not, but be a little bit better version of himself. And I think that that nuance and that depth of character there is where I start to see like the multidimensionality of his role and that it's not just him being abrasive. It's that it's him being abrasive in some moments with his interactions, whether it's with, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Ministry of Magic or in the first movie, Macuso, you know, whatever it is, the USA version of the Ministry of Magic. And then there are these moments that are more personal where he tries to be, you know, better about it, where he tries to add that second dimension. And, you know, again, I, I still understand 
some of the complaints about the character and the performance, but I do think that there is more depth than than the one note that you've described. Yeah, you, you, you may be right. I mean, like, I hear where, you, where you're coming from, but I stand my stand by my objection, Your Honor. Yeah, no, that's um, fine, absolutely. And, and while we're on the subject of performances, um, why don't we talk about the main villain in this movie? I guess you would say the other main role. Um, mm-hmm. His character's name is in the title of the movie. Um, and that is Grindelwald played by uh, Johnny Depp, obviously a very polarizing actor at the moment. Uh, I mean, you could say he's always been a very polarizing actor, but, you know, for some rather unseemly reasons now, perhaps he's, he's a little more po- polarizing. Um, but what, what did you think of um, what he brought to the character of Grindelwald? Because I know that this casting was intrigued a lot of people. Yeah, I, y- yeah so the kind of real-world uh, problems with this character... Well, maybe put them aside for a moment if we want to discuss them, we can. But I think that Johnny Depp, at the end of the day, is probably, you know, a great person to play this role. He's spiky. He has a lot of charisma, which Grindelwald has to have. Like, for the yeah. for this performance, it, it's not like Voldemort, where, you know, Voldemort is, is chemistry-less in the sense of that, like, you do not need to have chemistry, or sorry, charisma, not chemistry, geez, uh, charisma to play Voldemort because he's just so menacing and so powerful that it doesn't he like he doesn't need to charm people, but yeah. Grindelwald is someone who does need to charm people. He does need to win people over, you know, not just with his, not just with his words, not just with his you know beliefs and his ideas, but also with his personality. And you can see that Johnny Depp has that. You know, I think that think you what can you see that in other movies. I think not necessarily in this movie though. You th- you think so? Yeah, for me, for me, it was it was a hair and makeup job disguised as a character. But go on. I mean, all of his characters are like that, though. Uh, I I don't agree, but finish, finish your thoughts and then I'll weigh in. Yeah, no, I think I mean I think that he you're not getting Grindelwald and you're not getting Johnny Depp at like the start of his ascent to power, right? You're getting it, it like like with Voldemort in the original series, like you're getting it in the middle, and you know he clearly. Like, people know who Galette Grindelwald already is. He doesn't need to charm people, like, on screen in front of us. Although I still think that he does in times, in terms of, like, quote-unquote, turning on that charisma. And, and, you know, maybe Johnny Depp, I, I have. I mean, it sounds like you're going to say Johnny Depp kind of phones, phones it in here. But I think yeah. that, um, I think that he, whether whether it's from the other movies that I've seen him in, and, you know, and he just gets the benefit of the doubt from me that I, kind of subconsciously, I don't know. But I think that Johnny Depp still kind of exudes that confidence and that almost arrogant personality that that you expect someone like Grindelwald to have. I don't think it's you know a great role, but in in a movie full of questionable lead roles, it sounds like I think it's I think it's decent and good enough. And I do think that Johnny Depp as an actor fits the role well in terms of what you'd expect from him. That being said, it sounds like what you're going to say is although he does fit the role, he doesn't necessarily deliver on it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with him being cast in this role, but I think not. I, I wouldn't even say he phones it in. I think he gets halfway through dialing and just hangs up. But uh, I, for for me, it was just this was just a, a complete nothing burger of a performance. Like like I said, it's a hair and makeup job described as a character, and I think he thinks that oh, you know, I'm Johnny Depp. I played quirky characters so many times before. Like I, you know. When I appear on the screen, people just say, "Oh, it's it's quirky Johnny Depp." There he is, um, and he he just thinks that that's going to allow him to coast through this performance. But 
it doesn't uh, help him for me. And like, you know, in, in some of his great movies, like, you know, in uh, Edward Scissorhands, like there's this sensitivity to his character beyond just the, you know, phantasmagoric, like physical appearance. And the same with, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, he obviously he has the weird look in that movie, but you know he's got this swagger and he's got this like wit about his his dialogue in that movie. Um, I, I think there's just so much more to his characters in those movies than just the quirky look. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me here, I didn't get all of that, and, and I think that's problematic, especially because like you're talking about, like you know he has these scenes where he's supposed to be this really like sort of seductive, um, like anti-establishment leader. Um, like, you know, there's this rally at the end where he's, he's speaking before a whole stadium of people. And it's like, it, it was, it just did not register at all for me. Like I, I could, I did not understand why these people would really feel compelled, uh, you know, or drawn to this particular guy as like the voice of the revolution, other than, you know, the fact that he has a weird hair and makeup job. So for me, it, it didn't work at all. So, a uh, question for you then. Do you think he tries to play it too much like Voldemort then? Like he's trying to be some like pre-Voldemort Voldemort in this role? I don't know. I mean, that, that's an interesting question. But like, even for me, like Voldemort still had more personality to me like than, than Grindelwald does. Like, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I like, I think that Ray Fiennes brought something, I, I, I don't even know, like something intangible to that character of Voldemort where he almost, even though he, you know, he's not supposed to be like, sympathetic empathetic in any sort of way like you could see a little bit more of sort of why at least why these other like villains are drawn to him like why you know he he's he who shall not be named you know and so i think that like for me grindelwald like was missing some of well, that he's spark. not menacing grindelwald's not nearly as menacing as no not, not at all not at all like i didn't yeah i didn't feel like he was a super huge threat. Like I, you know, I didn't understand. Like, what are the scope of his powers? Because it seems like you know mm. he certainly he himself is actually limited in his powers, and that's why he's looking for credence because he wants to use him to kill Dumbledore because Dumbledore is like his equal or, or, or his his arch rival. Yeah. Or whatever. I, I, this, so this is where the the lore of Harry Potter maybe expo- it gets exposed a little bit in terms of like the, yeah. the background knowledge you need. But there's a ton of. I could sit here and explain to you, which is probably not worth the time, exactly what like the the plot narrative is behind, um, <laughs> behind what what his powers are, and also what his deal with Dumbledore is. Uh, I don't I don't actually don't remember how much in the movies, the seventh and eighth movies, it goes into that, but it's a big part of the seventh book, and you learn a lot about his and Dumbledore's relationship. Yeah, well, so there you go. I mean, that's. That's just some background knowledge that obviously I didn't have the benefit of knowing going into this. But, but even do, still, but do you like, do you remember the Elder Wand from the eighth movie or seventh movie? Yes. The like the Deathly Hallow, that the Elder Wand. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. So that's so Grindelwald has the Elder Wand. Okay. So he's like the most powerful wizard up there with Dumbledore, but this unbreakable right. vow slash blood oath. They can't attack sure, each other. which we find out about at the end of this. Yeah, that, that, okay. that's a new thing. I didn't know about that from the books. That's new, but um, yeah. explains explains a little bit. Okay. Well, but regardless, like for me, I, ju- I just wanted more from the Johnny Depp performance. That's fair. I, I think that's fair. I think that, you know, like I said, maybe, maybe his past performances as quirky characters, you know, maybe his plan to just ride on the back of his previous work, you know, won me over a little bit, but uh, yeah. I, I hear where you're coming from. 
Yeah, so why don't we why don't we talk about a few of the other performances? Um, yep. There, because this obviously this movie does have a big supporting cast with Indeed. a lot a lot of names. Uh, you know, we have Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, who play sort of the people in in Newt's inner circle. We have Zoe Kravitz playing Leo Lestrange. We have Jude Law as Dumbledore. We have Ezra Miller as Credence. A lot of big names here. Who was a standout for you, if there was anyone? All right, and <clears throat> I think there is a standout um, in terms of. Performance for me for for the extended cast like Jude Law as Alice Dumbledore makes me very happy. You, you don't get too much from him in this movie, but Jude Law has the plays this character with the swagger that you expect a young girl Dumbledore to have. And I mean, again, you might you might disagree with me here, but I think Jude Law is a very well cast young Alice Dumbledore. And just running down the list here, Ezra Miller. You know, I like Ezra Miller. I really hate the character of Credence Barebone. Yeah. Um, like, I think that this character, th- like, maybe this is going too far, but, like, this character is a joke. Like, I don't understand. Like, spoiler, big spoiler aside, which I don't know whether we'll address in the plot at all, that happens at the very end of the movie. But, like, this character is a dumpster fire in my mind. Like, he somehow, like, they literally just have him somehow survive at the end of the movie, just so they can bring him back, and then just be this miserable kid, like, moping around Paris. And, like, Ezra Miller aside, which I think he's really, he's had a, either really bad luck in the movies that he's been recently with the DC Universe, and also this, or maybe it's just... He's paid, a, though, so it's not really yeah, bad. Yeah, he's making bank, but, like, I don't know if he should be, because he's not doing yeah. he's not doing well, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think of that. You can maybe put your thoughts in on that in a second. But just running down the list again, staying here with... Dan Fogler, I really love Dan Fogler. I think he's probably one of the better performances in the franchise. Again, I think he's a little bit worse than he was in the first movie and this new movie, which I think is generally true across the board for people. But he's still someone who I was really excited to see. I think that his his chemistry with the other characters on the screen is really good. And I think that he's always kind of a joy to have in a scene. For Catherine Waterston, she's also like brooding little sad girl. I don't understand. Yeah. Like... A lot. So, to back maybe maybe to the reason why I think that all these characters are a little bit worse than they were last movie is because this movie tries to do so much. There are so many subplots in this movie that leave you leave you wanting more in terms of not just in terms of like oh like that was so good I want more. It was oh that really needed more. (laughs) Yeah, and the quote unquote romance between Newt and Tina is definitely like one of the plots that is left wanting. Yeah, and then, sorry, to just keep running through the list here so we can keep moving. Um, yeah. Allison Sudal, who plays Queenie. Right. The Okay, so, like, we make jokes all the time about, like, in Shmodown we talk about heel turns, but, like, dumbest <laughs> heel turn yeah, of all really. time. I do not understand why she is, a, like, unless she is under the Imperius curse, I do not understand why she is, like, a, like, Grindelwald's, like, I don't even know, like, administrative assistant now <laughs> at the end of the movie. I mean, it, it seems like she, he has to have cast some kind of spell on her, right? Well, that's what I would, That's what I thought, too. But, like, <laughs> I was talking with someone who I saw it afterwards, and they are like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm just like, if uh, she I mean, is not... not clear from the movie. If she's not under the Imperius Curse, like, this is the worst character, yeah. like, development I've ever seen in, like, yeah, the Harry, po- in the Harry Potter franchise. Coming. Like, it is so bad, in my yeah. mind. Like, I get that, like, she has this really difficult relationship with... Dan Fogler's character, who is a nomad, who's a muggle, and there are certain rules in the United States about wizards, um, wizards and witches being with muggles. But that whole plot line, from start to finish in this movie, is terrible. 
Like, it's worse than Tina and Newt, in my opinion. Yeah. But, okay, I think that's the... And then there's also Claudia Kim, who plays Nagini, who I thought was good. But other than that, I think I, I, think I got the list covered there. Oh, yeah, Zoe Kravitz. So, I like Zoe Kravitz. She was yeah. good. Um, oh, gonna, sorry, one more, one more. Callum Turner. Yeah. I thought he does a good job as Theseus. I think Theseus Playing is a bad Theseus, is right. a bad character, but I'm yeah. done now. <laughs> um, so we're we're actually gonna agree on something uh, cool. because I also loved Jude Law's performance as Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I I think you're so right that he brings exactly what I was wanting from this character. Like it feels very faithful to the character of Dumbledore, even Absolutely. though obviously we're going off the page at this point. Yeah. Um, and to me, like those were some of the. the most enjoyable scenes in the movie to me were those the scenes that actually take place at Hogwarts and they're you know they are brief um but sort of those you know you know the nostalgia and you oh, know, yeah. just when he when he says like oh students go with Professor McGonagall now you know it, it takes me back to like the you know the original Harry Potter movies so I, I appreciate sort of you know those touchstones of yeah. the original franchise I really question the accuracy of that there's so first off he's a transfiguration teacher yeah. Which really confused me. Like, I know, I know that he could have changed discipline. But he was teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts, right? Yeah, no, he was, which is why problem. Because he's a yeah. transfiguration teacher when Voldemort is at Hogwarts. Yeah. And so I was like, huh? And also, Mag- McGonagall being a teacher there in the 1920s? That was it was? Yeah. That seems yeah. like, I don't know if that's right or not, but regardless. But I mean, it, you know, to, to, to follow through, like, in, in the original movies, like, it does seem like they're around the same age, at least. I mean, you have, what, Richard okay. Harris playing Dumbledore and Maggie Smith playing McGonagall, obviously. So, I mean, I guess that it, it's it's probably somewhat authentic. But I mean, don't we, don't we hear, like, doesn't Dumbledore get taken off of teaching Defense of the Dark Arts, like, in this movie? Yeah, there was that, but it was unclear to me whether he, like, that was when he also got the um, tracker put on him by the yeah. minister, so I'm not, or sorry, not even minister, it's like the director of magical law enforcement or whatever, yeah. um, so I'm not 100% sure that that lasted, but yes, I think that that might be the way around it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, for me, his was the standout performance. Um, I, I kind of echo what you have to say about some of the other performances. I don't think Dan Fogler, like I, I kind of enjoyed his character in the first movie, but for me here, he's just kind of an annoying sidekick that doesn't really have a lot to offer. Yeah, um, and he's a muggle, so he can't do that much. <laughs> yeah, freaking muggles. Yeah. Um, and I also agree about Ezra Miller. I think, well, again, while I like Ezra Miller, like I just don't know if he's cut out for these like big budget movies. Because like, the movies where I think he's really been able to show what he can do are smaller movies like need to talk about kevin and perks of being a wallflower i think like you know those are the movies where he's really shown what he can do i i just think that he's not being correctly cast at, you know as flash or here as credence i mean I, I agree like i don't i don't get this character at all like yep. they have this this scene where he's like <clears throat> trying to figure out his heritage like you know trying to figure out find his mother and like i guess supposed to feel something for the character and that you know this scene involving like his old nurse and like it just was a complete dud for me yeah no i think that a lot of the plot (laughs) points in this movie i I can just repeat that i I think it's really weak yeah so i mean that that's kind of our our last talking point for the movie no i disagree no 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 visual effects and the magical creatures we can't not talk about them it's the best part of the movie yeah it's so so good yeah, I mean, I, I was going to go into sort of where this movie um, ranks in the Wizarding World front. But, I mean, I, yeah, the, I mean, I think the special effects are obviously really strong here. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, they do do some cool stuff with magic that <laughs> we probably don't get to see in the original movies. And I mean, just at the, just at the very end, you get you get a. I mean, well, one there is uh, Nicholas Flamel, who's a <laughs> shout out to the original movie. But then, two, you get this like massive, like joint spell that are cast by like ten different people coming out of the yeah. ground. Like, okay, you can be like, okay, what is what is this witchcraft that they're doing or whatever? But at the same time, like, that's really like the visual effects of that, and then like them containing this firebird essentially is awesome. Like, it's so cool to watch on screen. Yeah, and I like. I mean, I like the integration of the Fantastic Beasts themselves. Like, mm-hmm. they're very like strange and yeah. creatively designed, which I appreciate. Yeah, pick the bow truckle MVP from the first film. The <laughs> the, the little green stick that can right, that can course, yeah. pick locks, and then in this movie, the Niffler is the MVP. Yeah, like he's such a champ. Like I love the like the magical creatures. If it's one thing that these movies do right and deliver on, it is the magical creature element. And, yeah, and uh, go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say, and I'll touch on one scene in particular that I loved when we get to what my favorite scene was. But yeah. that, yes, that involves magical creatures as well. And like, I get that some of it is so people. So, for example, I, I hearken back to this time last year when people really complained about porgs in Star Wars Episode Eight, and it being like just so they can sell plushy toys or whatever, <laughs> and like. I don't care that that like it feels very similar to that in this movie in terms of some of the some of the magical creatures, but like I don't care. Like it's awesome. They're really like they deliver on putting on the screen adorable magical creatures that you know they're adorable and that they are really cute. But you know they have a little bit of a dark side to them. They're a little dangerous. Like it's not they're not yeah. all easygoing and they're integrated into the story to a point you know to reflect on a point that you were just making they're integrated in the story really well like their integration into the story makes sense in some ways it's the parts of the story that make the most sense and i just can't praise the magical creatures and what jk Rowling created and then you know delivered on screen you know whether i don't know how much they i'm sure they intimately consult with her on you know bringing these creatures to life with drawings etc but what like her imagination and then the realization of that of that idea is on screen is amazing for the magical creatures. Yeah. And you know, I actually think even more so than the porgs, like they, these creatures, like you're saying, have, have a meaningful role here in the story. Like I think the porgs, Oh yeah, they don't have any role. Really. As much as I love the last Jedi, like they don't do anything. Like it's not, it's not even like an Ewok thing where like the Ewoks <laughs> were at least fighting. Like yeah. the porgs are just there, but you're right. But yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I agree that I think it is one of the stronger elements of the movie. And I think that, I wouldn't be surprised to hear this movie's name in Oscar season when we're talking about the technical categories. For I sure. mean, I mean, the first movie won Academy Awards. Let's be very clear: like it yeah, won visual yeah. effects, it won costumes. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was going to say I think the costumes are very good as well. Yep. Yeah. Right. Um, so finally, let's 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 talk about sort of this movie and the the general landscape of the wizarding world. Do you think it it fits in well? You know, I've already kind of said that I think that you know. Big fans of Harry Potter will probably be satisfied with what they see here. Like, do you, do you agree with that? Uh, again, I think big fans of Harry Potter will be satisfied if they have the right mindset going into the movie. Yeah. If, they're, if they're looking for this, if they're looking for the story beats and like to to be rekindled from the original series, you're gonna have to wait on either another movie or you know maybe just go rewatch Harry Potter. But yeah. you know, if if you go in with the right mindset, I think that you will leave this theater very happy yeah i agree i mean i think that you know i i wouldn't put this movie very high on my list of you know if we're talking about the harry potter movies you know as a whole sure but i mean i think it it, 
it does add something to the to the universe. It, if not now, then I think some of these points will, will at least hopefully pay off in later movies. Um, yeah, and, and maybe in the future, after we've seen another movie or two, we'll be able to look back and and maybe this movie will kind of make more sense, and we'll we'll see what they were leading up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just to, just to have that basis, just to have that background going forward, um, I think I think it's it's something that Harry Potter fans should definitely check out. Yeah, you know, to this point, and I'm gonna say throw a blanket on spoilers because I'm about to spoil the very end of the movie here. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, you know you've gotten through 45 minutes or whatever this podcast, and um, just like fast forward like two more minutes, and then we'll get to the scores, and it'll, you can go about your day. But um, I think that. I'm. I think that in a lot of ways, the next movie or, or you know the next three movies, whatever it ends up being, in this franchise, we might look back on this movie and think better of it because there are there are plot points there are plot points in this movie that make very little sense in this movie. But I really wonder what they're going to be like when you yeah. put the whole series together and you and this becomes a you know one singular story. Because well, one I think you have the whole situation with. Uh, Queenie, which I think is like a, a huge question mark for me, but it turns out she may be you know under the Imperius curse, and that explains that and adds depth to that plot arc. And then two, I think that Credence being a brother of Dumbledore and Aberforth right. is a total joke. I'm gonna be so pissed if that's true, because like one, I, it's not yeah. it's not in the books. Like they go into great detail about Dumbledore's backstory and his family and how much he cares about his family and how you know his life was very seismically affected by you know his relationship with his sister and Grendelwald comes into that uh there's no need to dive too deep into that and I know Scott you may be a little bit confused because you don't remember those plot points but that's okay but I think that if if Grendelwald is not making that up in line to Credence then which I could understand him doing because he wants Credence to go and kill Dumbledore I can understand why he'd be lying about this but if he's not I'm gonna be so pissed about this movie yeah, I'm in agreement. I thought that, that was a little weird, but I also, you know, my first impression was, well, that can't be true, right? Um, so, yeah, we'll see. That 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 seems like one of those things that's just a big cliffhanger that they're going to dangle out there, so you'll go see the next movie. Like the more I talk about, it, the more I think about it, the more I just have to be like, okay, it it must not be true because yeah. it, it makes too much it makes too much sense for Grindelwald to be lying about it for him to be telling the truth, basically. Yeah. But if it ends up being true, I'm going to be very unhappy. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I agree. Cool. Okay. That that's it. I've that that's my last word. I'm I'm ready to move on. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we move to the wrap up phase then? Uh, what was your favorite scene in this movie? Yeah, I think there are a lot of really good moments in terms of in terms of nostalgia. The scenes at Hogwarts, particularly the first scene where like Dumbledore is talking to the Ministry people, and it's even in the trailer, like the line where it's like. You know, if you've ever had the pleasure of teaching Newt, you know, he's not a great follower of orders. I love that line. I love that scene. It hits a lot of nostalgia beats, to your point earlier in the podcast. And then, on the other hand, I think there's a few scenes with magical creatures. I hope I'm not stealing the scene that you are. But, like, just the last scene, uh, after the, they cast the spell, after the Niffler makes it out, and he, like, shakes the little blood oath container out of his pocket, and he's kind of limping, and he looks all, you know, like he went through a war zone. It's so cute. Um, there are a couple other scenes like that, but... You get a nice, diverse range, I think, in this movie. And, you know, you get the nostalgia, you get the cute creatures and the beautiful visual effects, and it's some combination of those, although one in my head doesn't particularly stand out. Yeah, so the, the scene that I liked was, I, I guess it's they're at the Ministry of Magic, and it's 
Tina, Newt, and Lita, and like mm-hmm. the, I guess she's, I don't know how to describe her other than like the front desk lady or whatever who has let them. Yeah, I call her like the, the, the librarian, basically. Yeah, comes back with these like panther cat looking things, but they're yeah. not quite cats. Yeah. But they have like these glowing eyes. Yeah. And there's sort of a battle that ensues between them where they're casting a bunch of weird sounding spells, which was <laughs> I thought was really cool. Like I, I thought those creatures in particular were very cool, like well designed, um, mm-hmm. and, and I enjoyed you know the action in this scene. Yeah, no, that, that's a good scene. I think that's a, that's an example of a scene where you don't get that in the Harry Potter movies. You don't get yeah. that level of <laughs> magical back and forth and fighting, and you know, kind of oh escape escape the room kind of uh fights to the to the death almost in some ways and and that's a that's an example of what this movie delivers that the original harry potter movies could never give you just 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 because of the setting and you do get more of an intricacy when we're talking about the spells and stuff here like then Mm -hmm. you get in the harry potter like i feel like in the harry potter movies like you know when there when we'd get a set piece it would be like okay we're doing magic now yeah but expelling armies yeah, exactly. In these movies, it's like, oh, we're doing this very specific thing for this particular situation. So, I mean, I guess on that level, I do appreciate the the deeper level of detail. Yeah, and the bottom line is, like, these, these characters, I mean, the reason that it's possible is that these characters are so much more knowledgeable about magic right. than, the, than the characters. I mean, he writes the text, he ends, Newt's commander ends up writing the textbook, so, yeah. Absolutely. Um, why don't we put a number on it now? Out of 10, what would you give Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald? Scott, I am almost positive I will be at least one entire point probably higher <laughs> than you on my probably rating. So. Uh, 6.5. Yeah, so I'm going to be a little low just because I, I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, not from a fan's perspective, but from a more critical perspective. Um, and I think that there's a lot of areas, just from a movie-making standpoint, uh-huh. that where this movie is lacking, so I'm going with a 4.5. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I almost said that I, I thought that would be two points higher than you, which I would have been right if I'd said that. But uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I do but, think that being said, like, I, I my only hit back against 4.5, I hear I hear where your score is coming from, but like, you will not find a movie with better visual effects than this. Yeah, so, and that, I think that's what gets it to 4.5 for me. Oh, God. Because beyond, beyond <laughs> that, there's, there's really not much um, besides yeah. Jude Law. But, Fair enough. again, I, this is not... Like, this is not a movie like Jurassic World where if you come to me and say, oh, I enjoyed Jurassic World, I'm going to yell at you. <laughs> because I will if you say that about Jurassic World. But for this movie, I'm like, okay, I understand that people um, you know, are coming into this with a different perspective and that there are going to be people who enjoy this more than me. So I, I won't be grudgy for that, but it, it just didn't work for me. Sounds good. No, I think that's yeah. So it's safe to say that The Crimes of Grindelwald didn't fully cast its spell on either one of us. Uh, But after a short break, we will be shifting gears to discuss the latest from Diary of a Teenage Girl director Marielle Heller. Can you ever forgive me? Be right back. Scott, we have a movie that I put on my list of most anticipated movies of the year all those months ago when we made our list. Can you ever forgive me? This movie is, a, is the latest directorial effort from Marielle Heller, whose debut feature, the, the Diary of a Teenage Girl, took Sundance by storm back in 2015. 
And this movie tells the strange but true story of down-on-her-luck biographer Lee Israel. As the movie opens, we see that Lee, played by Melissa McCarthy, has lost her job, is behind on her rent, and can't even afford to buy medicine for her cat. On top of that, her book agent is adamant that Lee's latest venture, a biography of Fanny Price, will never sell. At her wit's end, Lee manages to stumble into a gold mine when she sells an old letter that she was once given by Catherine Hepburn to a collector, receiving a handsome sum in exchange. The sudden windfall gives Lee inspiration to begin a new project of sorts, forging letters from famous writers including Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker and pawning them to various dealers. With the help of her new friend Jack, a flamboyant British party boy played by Richard E. Grant, Lee embarks on this dangerous quest to find creative and personal fulfillment, even if it means paying a hefty price. Scott, this movie is generating strong Oscar buzz for Nicole Hall of Center's script, as well as the performances of Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Is it the real deal, or is it merely an attractive forgery? You know, I think this any this is anything but an attractive forgery because I think that you know we've talked you know the last couple of episodes on the podcast, including this one, we've talked about movies that you know haven't been critically successful in terms of Bohemian Rhapsody and Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. But fans probably will really enjoy. So you know, fans of Queen will enjoy Bohemian Rhapsody. Fans of Harry Potter will probably enjoy Fantastic Beasts. And I think this is the kind of movie where fan. Well, I mean, there aren't probably fans of Lee Israel. That'd be kind of weird. But um, <laughs> but I think that this is the kind of movie where Critics really love it, and fans probably aren't going to go see it. And that's just the reality of this kind of movie. Like Lee Israel is a not a, is not a sexy person in history. You know, Melissa McCarthy is not the kind of person you know that attracts roles for uh, attracts audiences for her dramatic roles. But I think that this is a really great movie. This is probably I didn't really know what to think walking into this movie. I mean, I knew that there was a lot of hype. You had put it on your you know most anticipated list for this year as you as you pointed out already and you know i wasn't sure what to think it's about someone forging letters it's not it doesn't sound like the most interesting content for a movie but you get in this and you start watching this movie and i was captivated by lee israel's experience now it's not a movie that you necessarily enjoy watching because what's happening on screen is not cringeworthy but really makes you kind of it really roils your insides i think like you know this is a person who was it, it becomes clear that she was once very successful which wasn't clear to me for a little while in the movie until she had a conversation with her uh, publicist or editor or whoever whoever it was uh, but then it became clear that she was once famous she was once very well renowned uh, you know very renowned for her biographical works and someone who's just really fallen on hard times as you pointed out struggling to even buy medicine for her cat uh, but at the same time, is a person who really draws you in. She's not exactly like a charismatic character, and Melissa McCarthy, in some ways, turns off her, you know, <coughs> comedy chops in some ways. That you know, there are there are sparks of that comedic wit that come in throughout the movie, but for the most part, turns it off. And what you get is someone who you're not quite sure what to think of, but ultimately, I think you root for. And I think that speaks volumes to to you know the hype. Around Nicole Hall of Center's uh, script, I think Marielle Heller's direction, and then also Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant's performances. I think this is a great movie. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned this movie against the backdrop of the other movies that um, we've seen recently. Because when I went into this movie, I was like, a kind of, a, a, a been on, I've been on a little bit of a slow streak, you know, between Bohemian Rhapsody 
and Crimes of Grindelwald, and then a movie which I'm going to talk about later, which, while I do think is very well made, uh, didn't exactly... Yeah, um, and First Man, too, but before... Satisfy me. Yeah, I before mean, yeah, even, go, even going back to First Man, which was disappointing in, in some ways, I think, um, although I'm still listening to the score, and it's amazing. <laughs> but I, I was I was really rooting for this movie, uh, you know, not le- least because I had it on my... Um, list of the most anticipated movies of the year and i absolutely loved it um from beginning to end uh i think you perfectly described what's so great about melissa mccarthy's performance um because there's nothing about the character like that we should be rooting for her at all like she's an abrasive character she pushes people away she is you know committing illegal acts and yet there's something about this performance and I like, I can't even point to exactly what it is, like one specific thing, but like we, we feel sorry for her and we, we root for her and yeah, ultimately we, we kind of want her to get away with it because we see, you know, that this, you know, task, she's imitating other writers, but in some ways, like, and she even says this towards the end of the movie, like this is the most fulfilling thing that she's ever done in her career. And I just love, love the way that this movie takes on themes of, you know, legacy and mythology. Like, I love movies that that take on the idea of, like, what do, how does our name live on after we die? Like, what is our legacy going to be, right? Yep. And, and I think this movie is totally looking at that because you have someone who is, you know, a, a biographer who, who makes their name about writing about other people. So, I mean, you, you never, even though her book was a, a New York Times bestseller, I mean, her publicist even tells her, like, nobody knows who Lee Israel is. Like, it's, it's a biography. It's more about... People read it not for the author. People read it for who the subject is about. And and then, you know, continuing along, what she's doing in this movie is she's imitating other writers. Like, it's not her own voice. And yet at the end of the movie, I mean, spoilers, I guess, um, you know, she she decides at the end of the movie that she's going to write her own book about what this experience is. So, so somehow through this whole experience of imitating all these people, of writing about other people, of sort of withdrawing and becoming someone else – um, she has found her voice um, and found her ability to write this book and write about herself for the first time because, I mean, you know, somebody asked her, you know, have you ever thought about writing about yourself? Um, I believe it's the book, bookstore clerk who mm-hmm. she goes on a date with. Um, and she says, no, uh, I don't think I'd find myself very interesting or something like that. And But, you know, by the end of the movie, she, she's changed her mind. And so I, I love the way that this movie... Um, takes on, you know, that theme of, of how your name lives on after you die. And um, I think that, again, the performances, not just by Melissa McCarthy, but Richard E. Grant as well, are spectacular. Um, yep. And honestly, just love this movie so much. Um, was Had such a big smile on my face walking out of it, even, even though, you know, there is a real sadness to a lot of the scenes. I think that the, it just strikes a perfect tone of like somehow balancing that sadness with, you know, this relatable feeling of loneliness that I think everyone has experienced at some point. Um, and also, you know, some wry humor in there, just like that, you know, the scenes between these characters, the banter between, you know, Jack and Lee is great. They, they make this sort of odd couple, um, really come to life in a way that isn't over the top or obnoxious like you might see in, (laughs) one of Melissa McCarthy's like buddy comedy movies. Um, yeah. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, no, I, 
you know, we, we can go into more detail here when we dive in, but I only echo that. You know, I'm not someone who loves uh, co- comedy movies that much. I, I don't. They're not the movies that I, you know, yeah. scroll down the box office releases for the week. You know, if I'm if we're not doing it for the podcast, I, I probably wouldn't go see comedies. The one exception being I, I randomly saw Game Night earlier this year. Really enjoyed it. But Melissa McCarthy kind of slapstick humor comedies are not the movies that I'm here for, if that makes sense. Nor, nor I. Yeah, and I found... You know, I was intrigued by her dramatic role because I, you know, it, it's often said that you know comedians can sometimes play the are, often are the best actors because they can you know really put on a persona and wear it so well on stage, and she absolutely does it here. Yeah, so why don't we use that to, to talk maybe in a little more detail about her performance? Is there something about the performance which makes it so great to you, or is it just a, a general? Um, you know, feeling that she brings to the performance to, to our character as Lee Israel. I think that's a great question. I think that, you know, you've already pointed out that you can't quite put your finger on exactly what makes it so special. And I think that's accurate. I think that it's something about the whole package of this performance. The character, which is a real life person, right? It's not like they're imagining a character and then delivering it on screen. But it's, it's something about the way Melissa McCarthy carries herself, the way she dedicates herself to the role. It always feels like she's in character. There are times where, you know, if we talked about the last movie, we talked about it, that maybe some characters kind of check out of their roles for periods of the movie or maybe even the whole movie. And, you know, this is someone who is deeply committed to playing Lee Israel the entire time. And, you know, you see it. You know, you see it in her home, you know, when Jack comes over, when Richard E. Grant's character comes over. You see it in, you know, the pet store when she goes there to get her cat medicine. You see it in the bookstore when she goes and, you know, either talks with Anna, who's that bookkeeper that you were talking about, uh, you know, or another one of the people that she ends up selling forgeries to. You know, you see it in every moment. I mean, I don't even know if there's a scene in this movie without her in it. I'm not 100% sure. I guess there are a couple where Richard E. Grant goes and sells the fakes. Uh, and then talks to the FBI or whatever. But, you know, there's barely a moment where she's not on screen. And, you know, that is a great thing because she brings it from beginning to end. Her character, like you said, I feel like we're almost repeating ourselves here, but it's worth saying again, you know, she's abrasive. Yet somehow something about Melissa McCarthy, something about the way this character is framed, something about the way that this movie is directed brings, you know, the nastier sides of this character the the sides where you know really shouldn't be as lovable and as forgivable as other portions and makes them that it makes them more forgivable it makes you like them a little bit more and there's just you know a little bit of magic in this in this performance by melissa mccarthy that catapults this you know to the top of you know to, to the top tier performances for the year and i think that you know another person in this role, which I, I think Julianne Moore was originally uh, cast for this role, and I, I have no idea how she would have fared in this role. I'm not going to make a judgment on that, but another another actress in this role could make this movie not very interesting, not very good, and ultimately not a great experience. But this movie is the exact opposite because of Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, and I, I think you know, just thinking about what makes her performance so great, why why we connect to this character, I think it's just even as she you know, is, is yeah, doing this sort of abusive behavior to herself, sort of. I mean, you know, she's an alcoholic. Um, even as she can't sort of overcome her own faults, we see what she's work, working towards. Like, we understand her goals and, and what she ultimately wants. Like, she wants companionship. Um, 
like she, she's obviously a very lonely person lives alone with her cat um she wants companionship and we see this in different ways we see it with jack obviously i mean which is not any sort of romantic relationship but then we see it you know with anna the bookstore owner who she goes on a date with but she just can't seem to like she just can't help but to push people away just because it's like it's in her nature um and so i think and all you know along the same lines with her professional career you know again it's that idea of wanting to make a name for yourself not wanting to you know die with without having uh, you know, felt like you've made an impact um, w- without being remembered in some way. And I think that um, we see her wrestling with that throughout the movie. Um, and I mean, especially when you think about the fact that, well, you know, she's she's forging these letters from these long dead writers. So like, here are these people who have been dead for years. And yet you have people that are still paying hundreds and thousands of dollars just for their letters. And, you know, for Lee, it's like, she, the reason why I think that she enjoys it so much is because she gets to live vicariously through this people and, and imagine, you know, herself as one of those great writers who someday, I mean, they, they talk about this in the movie too. Like, do you ever think that your letters will someday be sold? Um, and she just, just like, no, I don't think so. Um, and so I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying about Melissa McCarthy. I, I, I do think it is one of these standout performances of the year, um, and, and I think she brought everything that I was looking for to this role. Yeah, and I think it's complimented beautifully, as good as Melissa McCarthy does. I think that what complements her performance well and what ultimately makes this movie what it is is also the performance of Richard E. Grant, who, you yeah. know, I don't even know how many movies I've seen with Richard E. Grant in it before. I'm, like, not someone who is that aware of what he's doing, what his work, what his acting style is like, but... To call it a flamboyant performance is accurate, and to call it something that, you know, really plays, like, the chemistry between his character and Lee Israel, played by Melissa McCarthy, is electric, but not in a way that's, like, to your, I mean, to your point, not a romantic relationship whatsoever, but it's electric in a different way. Like, they really feed off of each other, and I think that speaks perfectly to your point about, you know, Melissa McCarthy's character here wanting attention, and, you know, wanting companionship, and they give each other exactly what each other is looking for, you know, from each other. And because of that, their relationship is electric. You know, sometimes that electricity, you know, sparks something that's really negative for both of them. Like, think about, like, when she goes to, I forget where she, maybe Yale or wherever she went to to steal the forgery. And he has, you know, he brings this young guy into the house and they, you know, do drugs, have sex, etc. Obviously, most of that's off screen. But, um... You know, she gets back and she's you know devastated by the death of her cat and then all the other stuff that's been happening, um, which she she expressly told her not to do in her apartment. But you know that what they're giving each other ultimately it sometimes can be really negative. But at the same time, that electricity is still there and that performance is still there. And I have to give credit to both of them for doing a really great job. Yeah, and, and side note about Melissa McCarthy's performance, I think that any actress. Act, actor or actress who can make me feel sympathy for a cat dying is does something pretty remarkable because I hate cats and yet I felt I felt a twinge of emotion in this movie when, during the scene where Melissa McCarthy discovers that you know her cat has died so good on Melissa McCarthy for that but yeah I I completely agree about Richard E. Grant I think in some ways he has sort of an opposite task of Melissa McCarthy because he's given a character who 
is not abrasive in the beginning. Like when we meet these character, he's like, you know, so charismatic. Like he, he's just sort of this lovable rogue that, you know, we want, you know, Melissa McCarthy become best friends with him or whatever. But then as the movie goes on, it's his trajectory is sort of the reverse of Lee's because we start to see sort of a, uh, a different side of him. And, you know, the fact that he's just as much of a screw up, if not more of a screw up than Lee Israel. Um, and, I would argue more of a screw up than Lee Israel. I mean, but. yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly think that there's an argument to be made there. Um, and, you know, the fact that he's homeless for one thing, um, which Melissa mm-hmm. McCarthy discovers, um, later in the movie i think i mean i actually think that that whole his character development what you learn about him you know kind of through the emergent storytelling in terms of like the the fact for example the first time they hang out and they go they walk back to her place and then he goes off to his place a couple blocks down you know he turns the opposite direction making it pretty clear that i mean i think implying there that he was homeless etc i thought that was really clever cigarette outside yeah and i think that's when you start sort of start to suspect. Yeah, he lights the cigarette outside, and then he he had pointed that his house was a couple blocks down a certain direction, and he actually turns and walks the other direction. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I th- so I thought that the storytelling was it, it, not only are there moments where the storytelling is you know very in your face in terms of the, these explosive scenes, in terms of their you know the one that I've described already, but a lot of the storytelling happened that happens is a lot subtler, and I really appreciated the the range of storytelling that you get in terms of the the notes that it hits. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think he's a very solid Oscar candidate as well for a supporting performance. Um, I, you know, and I, because I think it is that's what it is. It's a supporting performance. I love the way that this character supports the Melissa McCarthy character um, in terms of like you know, as I was describing, sort of the the different trajectories that um, the characters go in, and yet somehow they combine uh, to make this sort of uh, boom or bust friendship, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, their, their last scene together in particular in, uh, in the bar, I think is one of the more, um, touching scenes in the movie. Um, so yeah, can't also cannot give enough credit to, to Richard E. Grant for what he does here. Um, as far as the supporting cast goes, um, it's really, it, it's really the, the Richard E. Grant and Melissa McCarthy show, but we do have some other, supporting characters we mentioned anna the bookstore owner played by dolly wells um we have jane Curtin, who plays marjorie um which is uh lee israel's agent um and then you know we have some other actors who play um like book dealers ben falcone um steven spinella um were there any other supporting performances to you which which stood out i don't think there are any that particularly stand out to me but i do want to give a shout out to uh Kevin Carolyn, who plays Tom Clancy, <laughs> which oh, is that hilarious. Was hilarious in that one scene. Yeah. yeah, no, I that didn't stick out to me in terms of performance, but I just laughed that that Tom Clancy was in this movie, um, or I should say that someone playing Tom Clancy was in this movie. It just made me laugh. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think that Dolly Wells gives a nice performance as the bookstore owner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I like the the scene where they they go on a a date. I mean it's unclear sort of, you know, whether Melissa McCarthy understands it to be a date or, you know, what, what really the whole, whole situation is there. But, um, you know, clearly, uh, Dolly Wells' character it's to be, um, and sort of, you know, at the end of the evening when they go their separate ways, um, I think she, she does a nice job portraying sort of the, the sadness, uh, that the character feels 
because maybe you know she's an older woman as well maybe feels like she's in the same place as as melissa mccarthy and has found someone she could connect with but again melissa mccarthy just can't help but to push her away um so i think that she does a nice job in that performance as well yeah i know i thought that, i thought that, that scene that you're referring to in particular was a, a really well done scene you have this dinner i think it's pretty clear to both of them that it is a date and i think that towards the end of the night right when yeah. you know it's time to face the music in terms of understanding what exactly it was and having to come face to face with that. You get, you know, the, the kind of reflexive instinct of Lee Israel to push people away when she, you know, she's had a wonderful night. She has this person who she could be very close to. She could confide in and instead, you know, kind of freaks out and, you know, and reflexively pushes that person away. And it is really sad. It is yeah. the, again, like, you know, it, it, with a different performance is, you know, even as abrasive as this character is, you see the abrasiveness and you're like, you know, I understand that. I understand why this character is so abrasive and pushes away. And that's really sad. And, you know, other, other ways to frame that scene or other filmmakers, other writers to frame that scene, it could be a very different story. But with this movie, <coughs> it works. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess we can, we can talk a little bit more about the plot in more detail um, if you'd like to. I think, you know, it, it moves along at sort of a leisurely pace, I guess you would say. But I don't like I was always captivated. Like it, for me, there were there were no part, moments in the movie where it really dragged. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that for the most part. I, I, there was a period of the movie where, you know, I can't say that I think I was captivated from start to finish like you are. But there are periods of the movie where I wasn't quite. 100% into it, and that was kind of towards the beginning when, you know, you're still getting a feel for it, you're not 100% sure what's, you know, who the characters are yet, particularly, you're not 100% sure who Melissa McCarthy's character is yet, uh, but it doesn't last for that long, and I think that the plot in terms of, you know, you, you get the start, you get the struggling writer, you get the, you know, finds the, you know, the quick fix solution to her, all of her problems, get rich quick scheme, on, in, you know, in some ways, and then, you know, you mentioned in a text to me, I think, that, you know, between American Animals and this movie, you get the real, you, you span the, you, you over-index on the number of, you know, heists of yeah. of our old documents uh, this year. I was just year. wondering how she was going to, uh, you know, gas and doubt or whatever in this movie like they did in, uh, <laughs> in American Animals. Exactly. No, I think that what this movie does a really good job was, you know, I know that you are a big fan of American Animals. I was less so. But what this movie does a really good job of is that, there's no one scene that feels like in. Uh, let me phrase this: in American Animals, like the climax of the movie is the heist, right? In this movie, yeah. the climax of the movie is not the heist. If anything, right. the climax of the movie is right after the heist, when right. you know she gets back to her apartment and she's really starting to come to terms with what she's done, and obviously, uh, Richard E. Grant's character Jack's behavior and then her cat dying. That that's the climax of the movie. And part of me really, really appreciated that. I. This movie ultimately isn't about someone who's forging and stealing documents, things like that. This movie is about the character. Of course, that makes sense. This is a biopic. American Animals, you know, although albeit a true life story, isn't isn't yeah. a biopic about a you know, certain drop, people yeah. exactly. And and so that makes sense. But ultimately, it's why I like this movie more than American Animals. No, I, I mean, and I and I agree. And I, you know, I didn't even like, unlike American Animals, you know, you you go in knowing this movie is about a heist. This movie, it's like I didn't even realize that it got to the point where she was like actually robbing libraries. Like you know that they don't make that to their credit. They don't make that clear from the trailer, which is good. I think because a lot of movies give away so much in the trailer. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree that I like that this movie 
doesn't dwell on the actual like technical aspects of oh here's how we're going to do the crime like here's how we're going to pull off the heist here's how we're going to forge the letters it's more about Lee Israel and what you know this quest uh, for success you know how it transforms her as a person absolutely no and that's that plot trajectory is handled so well because you know you get to the back half of the movie after the climax you know that I just described and you get you know, the reckoning that she has to face, right? Like, ultimately, she has this falling out with Jack for a little while, um, right after, of course, that she kicks him out of his house because of the way she he had abused her trust and abused her um, kindness, to, to be blunt. And, you know, that, that relationship becomes, you know, ostentatiously toxic. You know, before it was more subtle, but I think then it becomes very toxic and, and verbally abusive towards each other. And then... You know, after that, you know, Jack gets arrested, and then she, he, of course, turns her in. She gets arrested, and then you have you kind of, kind of the resolution of the movie, which, in some ways, is is that la- the last scene in the courtroom where she's talking about. It isn't the last scene in the movie, to be clear, but the scene in the courtroom where she's, you know, giving her monologue, where you know, you get the the uh, the where she's like, you know, I, I don't know that I regret what I did, et cetera, et cetera, um, but ultimately, it wasn't worth it. And that is the resolution, which I think is a beautiful... I was a little bit worried about that scene at first. I was worried about, you know, that kind of courtroom monologue. And I was also worried about the scene with her ex-girlfriend, Elaine. I was a little bit worried about what that scene... Yeah, and I was... Uh, I was was a little bit worried about what those two... Like, I thought those two scenes could really break the movie for me. I was a little bit worried about what those would be like. Uh, And and I still got exactly what I thought was... What fitted the film in that way you know you get this scene with her ex-girlfriend elaine who's just like look i can't fix you and i'm not gonna try because it's too much effort and it's not worth it which just felt so authentically real yeah and i loved that so much and then you get the courtroom she's like yeah you know you still get the abrasive character you know yeah i know that like i know what i did was wrong and i can't say that i regret that i'm I'm not sorry yeah i'm not i can't say that i'm sorry because i was probably having the time of my life but you know ultimately it's not worth it. And that just feels like, yes, it's very abrasive. It's very true to her character. But again, just feels so brutally authentic. And, you know, as, as abrasive as she is, this character, she also has these moments of, like, sincere, pure authenticity, which ultimately is what makes her such a redeeming character in some ways. And I think that the resolution of this movie, which, again, to, to say that I was a little bit concerned about the scenes when they started, uh, those concerns were misplaced because they, they deliver. And then I think it's a, it's a fitting way to end the movie with kind of the, it's it's not a post credit scene, but it feels like an epilogue, and you know you, you get this, you know I'm I'm thinking about writing a book about me forging it. Is it okay? This conversation with Jack, I don't know how many months later it is, or if it's years later, or or what it is, but you uh, you get that scene in the bar. She's skipping it, you know. She's breaking the terms of her parole. To be very clear, she's yeah. not at her AA meeting and she's drinking alcohol, and she's having this conversation with Jack, asking him. Uh, whether it's okay if he if she includes him in her, in her book, and you see that Jack is having to also come to a reckoning with his uh, his choices in his life. With it, I think it's it's heavily implied that he's suffering from he has uh, AIDS, yeah. yeah he has AIDS and suffering from from the consequences of that uh, of that um, disease and, and what it can do to an individual. And it's a really fitting ending to the movie. And, and you know if there was a if there was a slow start, and if I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a slow start. But if I was still trying to feel things out at the beginning of the movie, and it doesn't immediately click for me, uh, by the end, everything clicks. I I, uh, I totally agree. Um, 
let's talk favorite scenes. What was yours? Yeah, great question. Favorite scene for me, I think it's... There, there, favorite scene is a weird way to describe it, right? Because there's no, there aren't too many enjoyable scenes in this movie. Because again, I, yeah. I, I really stand by the fact that it's, it's really, it's a tough movie to, to kind of breathe mm-hmm. in sometimes. And but I think favorite scene has to be the, the forgery. Sorry, not the forgery. The, um, the scene where she, right after she robs the live, the the archives collection at, from Yale, comes back, and then her cat has died. She, you know, yeah, is screaming at at Jack Richard E. Grant's character and his and his the the guy that he had brought home and gets her to get out. It's just it's a moving scene for really unconventional reasons, I would say. And I I can't not think about that scene when I'm when I'm when someone asks me about this movie. Yeah. So for me, I, I agree with you in saying that there are not a lot of like per se enjoyable scenes. But for me, the one that I am picking is probably the one of the most enjoyable scenes and that is the very end of the movie um Mm -hmm. when melissa mccarthy has gone into this bookstore asking about a dorothy parker uh, letter that she sees in the window that is actually one of her forgeries um and sort of it it reminded me almost of black klansman the way towards the end of the movie we get those two scenes of basically where uh ron stallworth is just like dunking on all of the you know (laughs) kkk members and and David Duke, she's sort of dunking on like these, um, book, you know, book dealers, letter dealers, and, um, you know, reveals to him in a letter of her own that, um, because he says like, oh, no one can write like Dorothy Parker. That's how it's authentic. And so she writes in this letter, like basically pretending to be Dorothy Parker and, but then, you know, reveals that the letter that he has is actually a fake. And we get this moment where he goes out to the window to remove the letter and he pauses for a second. And then he just puts it back in the window. And I, I love the way that that image, um, I think, sort of brings home what it, what the movie is saying about, um, you know, the, the that theme that I was talking about earlier about about legacy. And I think what it's saying really is it's more about the art than it is about the artist, right? Like, it's, it's not so much about, um, you know, the fact that this is a forgery. It's the fact that this is really creative and yeah, it could have been something that Dorothy Parker wrote. And I think that's sort of the, the realization that Lee Israel comes to that. Yeah. You know, (laughs) her name will never be on any of these letters. It's always going to be someone else's name, but for her, it's like the best thing she was able to create. And the process of creating it for her was like the time of her life. Um, so ultimately it's not so much about, your name living on as it is your art. Um, and, and so I, I really appreciate the way that they brought that home in that final scene, which yes, is humorous, but also again, wraps up that theme. And I think, you know, so many movies that we talk about, even movies that I love, like thoroughbreds have endings that sort of left me a little bit cold. And I don't think this movie does that at all. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't agree more. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's put a number on it. Yeah, for me, this is one of the best movies of the year for me. Um, I, I know that not a lot of people are going to go see this movie, and that's a little disappointing because, again, the material, the content isn't sexy, but 9.5. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's absolutely one of the best movies of the year, and I honestly can't think of any negative thing to say about it, so I'm going with the 10. I loved it. There you go. 9.5 and a 10. Um, all right. I think that, and you know, Marielle Heller... To, to put a bow on this, you don't have to wait too long to see her next movie because it's the uh, it's about Fred Rogers. 
Uh, it's You Are My Friend next year, 2019. <laughs> oh, with Tom Hanks? Yep, Tom Hanks. Oh, that's going to be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Very impressed with this movie. Everyone, please go seek it out. Um, you know, it's it's a small movie, but it's showing in a lot of places, I think. So go find the, you know your, your local theater and... and catch this movie because i don't think you'll be disappointed it's really wonderful yeah and you know this um, is the kind of movie that's going to get it's going to get reshown in february around yes, oscar season yes. because it, it will be getting oscar nominations i feel pretty confident in saying at least for the performances and for the script um i think you're going to see it in there and hopefully for best picture as well because i think it deserves it based on what we've seen so far this year absolutely all right, well, Scott, I don't know about you, but I think we've done a pretty Lee Israel-esque job of pretending to be movie critics over the past year, and we will continue doing so after the break when we'll have short reviews of The Girls in the Spider's Web and Suspiria. Yeah. Be right back. Hopefully people will be able to forgive us. Yes, I have. Girl in the Spider's Web. It's kind of... I don't know quite how to like frame this movie. It's the fourth novel in the series, uh, originally written but, but published posthumously by Stieg Larsson. But who it, di- the book's not written by Stieg Larsson. Right? Well, no, so that's my point. So the, it's yeah. the fourth book in, in a series that the first three books are written by Stieg Larsson, yeah. pu- published posthumously, and then David Lagerkrantz comes in, is kind of commissioned by the estate of Stieg Larsson to continue writing these books. He had a lot of... Uh, Stieg Larsson had a lot of notes and actually kind of a sketch for like 10 books. It's something crazy like that. I don't know. Wow. Um, really long series. And I, I don't know how faithful... I haven't done enough research, but I don't know how faithful Girl in the Spider's Web is a book was to Stieg Larsson's intentions for, you know, a fourth book, etc. But my understanding is that uh, there there is some some source material to work from in terms of writing the book. And then you have this film. Oh, I guess also to, to provide context, I'm a big fan of this series, especially the original three books. The first book, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is, I think, pretty well-known globally at this point, yeah, is, I, I think, is one of the best mystery novels of, you know, the 21st century. Um, so, you know, I think it was technically published in... I don't remember when, 2006 maybe, I'm not 100% sure, but is a fantastic book. Its follow-ups are not quite as good, but I think still capture uh, some of the parts that I really liked about the first book. And they it, it gets a little bit crazy in terms of very intricate plots, and, and you really have yeah. to be paying attention. I don't know if you're familiar with the follow-up books at all, but... It gets a little no, bit crazy. It gets a little bit crazy. But then this fourth book is kind of like a. It sets in the book is set several years after the the events of the previous books, and so it's kind of a soft reset in a way. It's the same characters, same same story development, but the movie here, which is uh, based on that fourth book, is a little bit more of a, a harder reboot. It, it it's still set in this universe. There's no sort of retconning of any plot or anything. You know, you have the Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara movie. Uh, Girl in the Dragon Tattoo, which I thought was quite good from back it, earlier. It was very good. Uh, back earlier this decade. And, and it's still in this same universe. Obviously, we have different actors and actresses. We have uh, Claire Foy, who plays the kind of titular girl, which is, of course, Elizabeth Salander. Uh, and then you have, I always I struggle to pronounce his name, 
But um, you have, oh gosh, is it Ola Gunnarsson? I'm not 100% sure. You're going to have to forgive me on uh, the pronunciation. But, you know, you have this character who's now playing Mikhail Bloomkist. Oh, he's replaced... It's, it's Sver Gunnarsson. Sver Gunnarsson. There we go. Sver Gunnarsson. Who played John, who played um, Bjorn Borg in, Bjorn Borg, in yeah, the Borg John McEnroe yeah. um, bio bio movie doc i don't even know how to describe that movie it was very strange um anyway he yeah he so he's kind of a a new to the scene kind of actor and this movie really dials in to the elizabeth salander side of the story which isn't 100 percent faithful to the book again like the book is very much more written from the perspective of mikhail blomquist but the movie which i think rightly so and i understand why takes the perspective of elizabeth salander and kind of really relegates this Blum- mikhail blumkus character to kind of a a joke almost i really kind of was surprised by the way this movie portrayed his character in terms of this kind of um hapless sort of journalist who's just desperate to write a story they, and they kind of shit and they kind of like do a hard pivot at the end with his character which wasn't really well developed in my opinion but ultimately, this is a story about Elizabeth Salander. It's a story about her coming, reckoning with her past and, and some of her family dynamics, which are very relevant for the second and third books in the series. But because the, the this is the fourth book, they're and they're not retconning anything. Like, like the second and third books and second and third movies, in theory, have happened in this universe. You just don't know about them. You, you kind of need some background going into well, this movie. Unless you've seen the Swedish versions. Cause I they, mean, they did make all three of the movies in Sweden. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard those movies are actually very, very good. <laughs> The first um, one is very good. I've seen the first one. Yeah, but again, like if you if you are a more casual viewer and not familiar with the right. series, you're gonna be a little bit lost in this movie. Yeah, I, I as someone who has read the books and is, it likes to think that I'm somewhat familiar with the again the lore of this universe. I don't know from a kind of uh, from a perspective of someone who is a, a, a novice to this franchise whether or not the plot threads, especially some of the key subplot threads, are understandable or are relatable. Um, I, I don't know how much someone who isn't familiar with the books is, or the Swedish movies, as you rightly point out, uh, is getting from these movie. but uh, it, it's interesting. that the, I think Claire Foy does a good enough job. The action sequences are exactly what you want from a movie like this. In some ways, that some of the set pieces are really, really cool. You know, James Bond-level cool action sequences uh, in some parts of this movie. But this movie leaves a lot to be desired uh, in terms of its plot development. I think that you, I, I can't help but imagine that you are completely lost in this in the plot of this movie if you don't understand what's going on in the other from the you know second and third books or second and third movies because you know there's this whole backstory that is left untold because the movie just doesn't have time to tell it. And I, again, I've already mentioned how I don't like how they deal with the Mikhail Blumka's character. But that being said, Claire Foy's character is good. It's a movie about two women who are very powerful and very in control of their of their situations and kind of have overcome men who have tried to control them. Like the whole story of Elizabeth Salander is about this woman who has overcome being controlled by men. And the villain in this movie, which um, I don't think is spoilers because they make it somewhat obvious in the trailers, I think, that the, the villain is actually Elizabeth Salander's sister, um, Camilla. And it's about two women who have uh, kind of ascended to, you know, not necessarily godlike, but extremely powerful uh, levels uh, of personal ability and, and sometimes also in their groups. You know, you have Camilla, who's the leader of this kind of syndicate of, of you know, criminals. And then you have 
Elizabeth Salander, who's this like major league hacker who is who you know kind of preys on men who prey on women. I think it's literally how it's framed in in the start of this movie. But that being said, I don't think the movie delivers its message in an overall meaningful way. And ultimately, it's fun. It's a fun ride at times, but leaves a little bit too much to be desired. I know that I told you this. I was talking about this movie with you off air, Scott, and I said that what this movie, what this movie basically made me want to do is it. It made me want to go read the books because the books are def- are way better um, than this movie, and also it makes me want this movie. It makes me also think about the potential for what this movie could be if it was just directed and written a little bit better. And, and you know, maybe it's just not meant to be in terms of the way that they chose to go with the girl in the spider's web over trying to do a hard reboot of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or, you know, follow up with a second with a second movie or something like that. But, but you know, if you're looking for an action movie, there aren't, honestly, there aren't that many of them out right now. I mean, we're going to get some more coming here with Thanksgiving with Creed 2, etc. But... Uh, this I guess Creed two does not actually I take that back. It does not fall in this category of action movie. But um, I I think if, if you really need a, an action fix, this movie could do it for you. But don't expect too much. I'd give it um probably like a, a five point five. Yeah, yeah. My sole experience sort of with the whole franchise is with that first story with the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> I've read the book. I've seen the Swedish movie of it, and I've seen the Fincher version, which I, I mean, I thought was very good, like you said, and I was kind of disappointed when they, you know, basically just abandoned, because they had planned to do the whole trilogy, um, at least from my understanding, uh, but I think, I don't know if the first one just wasn't successful or not, or commercially, um, or what, but they just kind of abandoned it, but I thought it was very good, but I still need to, to catch up with those other two Swedish movies um and you know i was intrigued by this one but because i mean i, I do like fede alvarez as a director you know i love uh, uh, don't breathe but mm-hmm. um i think that number one the fact that it wasn't based on a book written by steve larson and then number two the trailers just oh they're bad really they were bad excite me um so i might catch up with it after it comes out on uh, on vod but i'm not gonna be rushing out when there are so many other great movies um yeah that's exactly what i was gonna say this movie this movie probably isn't worth seeing in theaters um with everything else that's coming out and honestly like unless there's a real lull i'm not even sure this movie is worth picking up on vod because yeah. like again i gave it a 5.5 that's not a terrible rating but it's just like there's no there's just no reason i can say like okay you should go watch this movie because of this right like even with fantastic beasts is like you gave it a 4.5 but like you can point to like the person who that movie is for, sure. and the and the and the the point of the, of the movie is to is to speak to certain people, but this this movie doesn't really have that. I would just yeah. say if you know if you're interested in in this story and this in this plot and this movie, like go read the books; they're better. Yeah, I agree. Um, at least from the based on the first book, the first book was very good. I mean, um, the first the first book to be clear is the best book. Nothing really right. hits the heights of that book again, but yeah, yeah. Okay, so I also saw a movie. A movie which I was very excited to see. So excited, in fact, that I drove over an hour just to see this movie because it was the closest place that it was showing um, in Concord rather than in Winston-Salem. Um, and that is the movie Suspiria. Um, this is the latest from Luca Guadagnino, who, of course, last year directed Call Me By Your Name, uh, which was nominated for Best Picture. Um, and rather strangely, I, many would say, he's followed that movie, which was, you know, sort of a, a coming-of-age romantic drama set in Italy um, with a, a remake of a 1970s Italian horror film 
um, from Dario Argento, who's sort of the known as as the master of Italian horror, um, and Suspiria, the original Suspiria, known as his his greatest work. Um, he's he's gone with a remake of that uh, movie, which is about a coven of witches running a ballet school. Um, so not exactly the most natural follow up to. Um, call me by your name. That's for sure, and and also to a bigger splash, which of course was his first movie. Yeah, what um, are you talking about? It's exactly the same. <laughs> uh, and I say that this movie is a remake, but I know I haven't seen the original. But from what I've read, um, it's a very loose remake, and you can probably see that based solely on the running times. I think the original Suspiria runs about a hundred minutes. Oh my god, this, this movie is two and a half hours. Jeez. This movie is two and a half hours long. Um, <laughs> And it is so, like I said, it's basically the story of uh, a, an American ballet dancer played by Dakota Johnson who comes to Berlin to join this elite ballet sort of academy, um, which is run by Tilda Swinton, among others. Um, Tilda Swinton actually plays multiple roles in the movie, both male and female, um, and, and as always, uh, brings very unique verve to her performances. Um, I think she does a great job. Um, but Tilda Swinton, along with the other women who run the the ballet school, are a coven of witches, and um, they they sort of are are set on using uh, Dakota Johnson's character as sort of their next victim. Um, at the beginning of the movie, we see uh, a dancer played by Chloe Moretz. Actually, the only scene she appears in the movie, but she has been basically uh, she's basically escaped the school after the witches tried to, um, you know use her as their prey, and it, it comes to the psychiatrist, who's also played by Tilda Swinton, and is, you know, kind of telling the psychiatrist what happened, and he's just saying, yeah, well, you know, I don't really believe you, it's just kind of hallucination. And then after that is when we, we go into the story of Dakota Johnson's character, and we see, well, no, this is this is legit. And all of this is sort of weaved in with the, the backdrop of, like, 70s in Berlin, like, Bader Meinhof and all, like all, all of this history is going on in the background. <clears throat> um, this is a, I mean, as as you can probably tell just from the description, it's a very bizarre movie. Um, there, it is not for the faint of heart. To be sure, there are some very gruesome scenes um, of violence that that happen. Um, some of the, the the things that happen to some of these dancers at the hands of the witches, um, pretty gruesome. But also, you know. <laughs> Not in a, like, I want to throw up way, but in a kind of, like, entertaining way, just of, like, wow, what are they going to do next? Like, how, how creative are they going to get with, you know, this death scene or whatever? Um, and, I, you know, in general, I think this is a very well-made movie, um, but I think it's also a very inscrutable movie. Like, for, I can't tell you really what the movie was going for in the last 40, 45 minutes, and maybe I'm not the person to tell you i've heard that this movie it to some people particularly women has been very powerful um in terms of sort of what it's saying about feminism and and gender roles and and body uh body image as well there's a lot of body heart that happens in the movie that's where a lot of the the gruesome uh, stuff happens um so maybe you know maybe i'm just not the right person to connect with what this movie is trying to say um, but I think that maybe it, it does go just a little too far into the bizarre, too far into the phantasmagoric um, in the last half hour or so. And, you know, naturally it does drag in its two and a half hour runtime. I'll be the first to say that. 
Um, it takes a very special movie, which can be two and a half hours long and <laughs> not at least drag in some parts. And this movie is not that movie. Um, I think that the performances are good. I think Dakota Johnson is someone who I I only am familiar with her from the Fifty Shades franchise, obviously, and you know, having very strong negative opinions about that franchise. Um, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about her performance in this movie, but I think she does a great job of playing this sort of demure American dancer who doesn't really know exactly what she's getting herself into, but once she does figure it out, um, you know, it is sort of set on, um, you know, ferreting out what's really going on in this ballet school. And, and I mean, even she may even have some inside knowledge Hint, hint. uh, not going to spoil anything, but, um, I think she does. She, she has some nice layers to her performance. And, you know, again, I think that some of the, the set pieces, I guess, if you want to call them are, are pretty memorable. Um, and, and that like the dancing, the choreography, like, and the costuming, like this movie should absolutely be nominated for an Oscar in the costume category should probably, and, and should probably win. And the same goes for hair and makeup. Um, particularly the makeup that they do with Tilda Swinton is pretty incredible. Like if I had not go, known going in that she was also playing the male psychiatrist character, like you would never in a million years have suspected that this was also Tilda Swinton. Like they do a brilliant job with that. Um, so I think that this movie should definitely be recognized on those levels. Um, I just wish that it wasn't so um, in love with itself, maybe uh, when it comes to, to the story and, uh, especially down the stretch, sort of just being sort of deliberately inscrutable kind of put me at a distance, unfortunately. Um, but I'm not sorry that I saw it. I'm not sorry that I drove an hour to see it. Um, I think it was uh, it was a un- one of the more unique experiences that I've had watching a movie this year. I think it was David Ehrlich from IndieWire who described this movie as the mother of this year in terms of how it's going to divide opinion. And I think that's that's probably a fair comparison. Somehow... I've, I've managed to come down in the middle of not really loving it, but not hating it either. Um, but I think most people probably will be in one of those camps. Um, but I give it a six overall. I, I you know, I think Guadagnino does, does a good job. Um, but personally, I didn't come out of this movie very wild or, or like I, you know, had, had a great time. It's so interesting because what you described is so, okay. On the surface, when I, you told me you were seeing this movie, I'm like, okay, I'll look up. What, what is it? It, I wasn't particularly interested in it. It doesn't yeah. seem like my kind of movie. And then as you've described this, it sounds like this movie should have a ton of potential. It should be yeah. something that that could be, you know, Oscar-level movie in, like, so many different categories. And, you know, you've described categories where, you know, it, it will be, hopefully, sounds like, nominated for Oscars and maybe even winning Oscars. And I think that the way that you've described it, in spite of coming out wishy-washy on it, it sounds like something that I kind of want to go see now. Yeah. Like, not necessarily in the theater. I don't think this is a movie I'm going to go see in the theater. But, you know, you know, this comes out, and, you know, I'm trying to wrap up, you know, watch a couple more movies b- before, you know, we have our end-of-year awards show. This might be a movie that I want to see, and I, I'm intrigued more so, and I didn't expect to be, based on, you know, my peripheral scan of this movie before uh, you just talked about it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I definitely think you should go see it. Because, again, you know, you're saying that this is a movie that should be attracting a lot of critical buzz. And, I mean, it is. There are a lot of critics who have called this one of the best movies of the year, you know, given it five stars, have really fallen in love with the movie. And there are 
are some really spectacular and memorable scenes in it. Um, just, you know, for me, it, it just kept me at a distance for, you know, for various reasons, perhaps. But I, I, I would not say that you should not see it, uh, because I think it is, you know, a movie that people are going to be talking about for, for months now, it's, leading up to Oscar season. Yeah, it's, it seems like just from what you're talking about and also like what I've heard about this movie is that it really, like it needs its two, it drags, but it needs its two and a half hour runtime for the, like the world building that it does in this movie. And yeah. like the, the, the layers of the, you know, again, kind of onion metaphor, peeling back the layers. It seems like there are a lot of layers to this movie Yeah. in terms of, you know, you have the surface level, you have like the different things that are going on with the acting and like Tilda Swinton playing multiple roles. And then you have the, you kind of like the, the supernatural element of it. And then also, you know, these, you know, the deepest layers with like this kind of, you know, it being a sort of, uh, piece about national guilt in terms of it yeah. being German, then you know it's what it says about yeah, motherhood and feminism. And the Holocaust does play a role in the movie as well. You know, I was hinting at the historical background, but yeah, I definitely think there's, and this is maybe one of the areas where I sort of got lost with how exact what exactly it was trying to say about the you know the historical background and about Germany and the Holocaust. I think maybe somewhere in this two and a half hour runtime, I sort of lost the link between what was going on in the ballet school and, you know, what was going on in the historical background. But, you know, I think some people have, have been able to pick up on it. So maybe that's just me. No, no, I think that's, I mean, it's probably totally fair and, I, and I'm intrigued by it. It's one of those movies that, it sounds like it might be one of those movies where you need multiple watches to really understand yeah. everything. And I don't think that's a, I don't, I don't think that you can give a movie a pass for that. Um, but it, it sounds like that could be it could be a case of that. Yeah, and I and I don't think to be fair, I like I don't know that I will watch this movie ever again. Oh, I, it I doesn't mean, sound like you it, would necessarily want to. Yeah, it, it, there are just some very unpleasant scenes in it. Like it, you know, well, I'm glad I saw it the first time. Like it's not something I'm going to be rushing back to for a long time. No, I think I think that's totally fair. But <laughs> I'm I my interest is peaked enough where I actually might see this now. So. Yeah, you should. You should. I, I, I would definitely be interested to get your thoughts on it. Well, we'll see if I can fit it in and see. I don't know how many theaters. I, honestly, I'm not even sure how how long slash how many um, theater screens this is even showed in in Boston. because yeah. it's again, it's not attracting the level of attention that other movies are, and it's that time of year. Which I mean, you know, I think it's more the subject matter than anything because it has a big name director, it has a big name cast. I mean, you know, with Dakota Johnson, mm-hmm. Tilda Swinton. And uh, Chloe Moretz, even though she's only in one scene, I mean, these are all very recognizable actresses. So it should be attracting some attention. That's true. Although I think Dakota Johnson, to be very unfair to her, is not like, oh, Dakota Johnson. It's, oh, that girl from Fifty Shades. <laughs> yeah, that's not, right. Like, I'm going to go see, I got to go see the new Dakota Johnson. Yeah, I think exactly. Till, until the um, Swinton is of a different generation, I'm going to I'm gonna go on a limb and say the, that. The people who appreciate her really appreciate her, but, like, not everyone does. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. That's uh, that's very uh, definitely worth checking out. I think even if I didn't love or, or, or understand everything that was really going on in the movie, um, but let's move on now. I want to talk about um, a big news item that happened this week, um, this past week in the world of, of pop culture. Really, um, of course, Stan Lee, the longtime creative director of Marvel, um, passed away at the age of ninety-five. Um, you know, it's it's hard to to point to someone in, in modern popular culture who has had more of an impact on where we currently are in, in, in the pop culture landscape. But I know I, I'm interested to get your thoughts on sort of his legacy as a huge Marvel fan. 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think that this came as a huge surprise to me. I was actually just scrolling through Twitter right when the notification came. So it was like two, I, mean, I was like two seconds. I had like already sent it to you and a couple other my uh, movie, super, superhero movie uh, friends. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, I know he's he's old. Right? He's, he was 95. Yeah. It's not like it was a total curveball that he had died, but it certainly yeah. wasn't expected. It, it doesn't seem like this was expected from his family. And, you know, the fact that he's still making a cameo in every single Marvel movie. And I, I think that he'll, I mean, he will appear in Infinity War Part 2 or whatever that movie's going to end up being called. It still hasn't been announced yet. But I think that it's just, this is a huge, huge loss uh, for the, the world. I mean, honestly, it sounds super cheesy, but he, this guy is an absolute living legend. I think that, I mean, no longer living, of course, but uh, he was a living legend. Um, and... You know, his impact, to your point, on pop culture, can't, I, I just don't think it can be overstated. I mean, I know that he didn't create Marvel Studios uh, in terms of films. Like, he didn't direct, he didn't, he didn't, I mean, he produced some of these films. I think I'm not sure exactly how in deep, deep his role was in, in making films. But, you know, that, that responsibility has lied elsewhere, lies elsewhere with Kevin Feige and other people at Marvel Studios. But this guy has, is, Marvel Studios is built on the back of his work creating you know, some of the most memorable characters, like besides Batman and Superman, right? Like, you know, you have Spider-Man, you have X-Men, Black Panther, like he created these characters. He is the person who, you know, two, three times a year, you go to the movie theaters and you forget everything else that's going on in the world because his characters, you know, and how they've been realized have captivated, you know, the world for the last decade. And they were captivating, you know, people... You know, fewer people, admittedly, but but people for the last six decades, seven decades, whatever it's been since he started writing comic books uh, and, 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 you know, imagining these characters. And, you know, I know that we're going to go here in a second and talk about our favorite Stanley cameo in, in superhero movies, not just Marvel, uh, not, not just the MCU, because he also made cameos in other movies. Um, but I, I think that his presence is one that will be missed again. Like, you know, he, he was older. He... His time, in some ways, in terms of his you know creativity and in ter- making new characters, has passed. But he's still a presence that you know will be missed. And I think all the tributes that are going out are are well deserved. And I, I think that the critiques of, of his contributions to culture, in terms of you know people questioning whether you know over time, I'm not talking about recently, but people over time have questioned you know the legitimacy of comic books as a form of literature. I think that Stan Lee's mission in life was never to really write pieces, like moving pieces of literature. It was to distract people from the realities that they lived in on a day-to-day basis. And to say that he accomplished that uh, is an understatement. He did that and so much more, and he'll be missed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I even though I'm not as big of a Marvel fan as you or just not quite as ingrained in that universe, um, I would be foolish to deny the impact that he has obviously had on, on modern popular culture and just where we find ourselves currently. I mean, with not just, you know, the MCU, but we have superhero TV shows. We have, you know, DC doing all sort of things, even though, you know, he didn't have anything to do with DC, obviously like he, he paved the way for superhero uh, stories to be at the forefront of our popular culture. Um, And so I think he should absolutely, uh, be appreciated for that and, and his legacy will live on long in, in the dozens of characters that he helped to you know create the mythology of so 
bravo yeah. to Mr. Stanley Excelsior. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, well, and to that point too, like he, he, of course, you know, he didn't work for DC. He didn't create DC characters. But at the same time, I think there's a lot to say about you know having having competition in the space, so having Marvel, having DC. I'm not giving him credit for creating any DC characters like Batman because, you know, Batman came back like 1929 or whatever the year was yeah. when Batman was created. But the fact that you had these two rival comic book, you know, juggernauts and, and going back and forth and back and forth and trying to compete with each other. I mean, that that drives innovation, that drives creativity, that drives success, it drives both of these studios to be better and, and to produce comics that are of a higher level than we might have otherwise. And so, you know, not just as he creating Marvel characters, but he was inspiring people who went on i'm sure to work at dc he inspired people to be more competitive and and write stories that were marginally better and over time and and i think that he has to be given credit for comic books generally not just marvel ones yeah um and i think you mentioned it earlier but one of the areas which he is most known for is his cameos um in all of the Marvel and MCU films and, and in other films as well. Um, so I want to know, and, I, and I've heard that uh, he's actually shot, he shot a bunch of cameos like before he died. So we probably mm-hmm. will be getting Stanley cameos in the next few Marvel movies because it doesn't, I mean, you can shoot a bunch of these in advance. It's not like they ever really have much to do with like the plot or anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know he, so all the ones that are already in post-production, they're obviously already done. So uh, yeah. Captain Marvel and... Um, Avengers four will, are done. I imagine Homecoming is also done, or not home? No, Far From Home. Sorry. Um, yeah, that one's done. And I don't. I, I mean, I guess maybe he'll he'll be in the Into the Spider Verse animated movie that we're gonna get. Yeah, I would. I don't know about um, animated movies, but it would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so what are your favorite? What is your favorite Stanley cameo? I have a couple in mind, but yep. there are so many so many great ones to choose from. What 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 was one that stands out for you? Yeah, there are two that come to mind for for me. One of them, which I'm I'm gonna give my honorable mention to, and for a long time this was my favorite, was the one from Thor. The one yeah, where that's he's, also one of mine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he has he's <laughs> in this pickup truck trying to trying to get trying to essentially use his trailer hitch and drag Mjolnir, which is kind of stuck in the desert out yeah. from a kind of sword in the stone style and it just destroys this truck uh which is hilarious <laughs> the back of yeah yeah great cameo and then my favorite which has recently become my favorite even you know it even took a little while since the movie came out for this to become my favorite but i think this is my favorite one is is his cameo from i believe civil war where he's dropping off a letter to the avengers headquarters at the at the very end of the movie he's like the mailman he's like got a package for tony stank uh <laughs> Which is which is just such a great memorable yeah. line. I'll never I'll never forget Tony Stank. Yeah, so I love the one from Thor. I also love uh, on a more comedic note as well. Um, in in the first Iron Man, when Tony is walking up to a party and we see Stan Lee from behind and he's wearing like a bathrobe and he has you know all the women around him and it's it's making fun of the fact that people think Stan Lee and Hugh Hefner look look alike or mm-hmm. whatever. And mm-hmm. and uh, Tony Stark says. Hey, Hef, good to see you or something, and he turns around and we see that it's actually Stanley, you know, yeah. with all the women. So that that I, I appreciate that one. But one of the ones which <laughs> I really like in a movie that I don't like, um, <laughs> that I think it, it kind of sums up Stanley's legacy nicely, um, is in Spider Man Three. Yeah. Um, when Tony Stark, I mean Tony Stark, Peter Parker is standing on the street in New York City, and he looks up at this sort of electronic display that is 
talk, telling the story of, of Spider-Man um, saving Gwen Stacy from the, uh, I don't, I guess it was from like the banquet. Thing. I, I don't even remember that movie so well. I, I tried to block it out. But um, he saves Gwen Stacy and it's just telling, you know, it's like a news item saying what Spider-Man did. And Stan Lee walks up to Peter as he's standing there and he looks up at the, the news item and says, well, I guess it's true. One person can sit, can change the world. Um, and like looks at Peter Parker and goes, enough said, uh, and walks off. And I think that's just a perfect way <laughs> to sum up Stan Lee's contribution to popular culture um, and just what he has done to, to change the landscape. So really appreciate that cameo, even though that movie is garbage. Sorry to, sorry if, I don't know if he's listening, but one of my mock trial students, Josh, he loves Spider-Man 3 and tries to tell me every day that it's a great movie, but I'm sorry, Josh, it's not. Yep. I mean, I think, to be fair to Spider-Man 3, I do not think it's a good movie. That being said, it's tough to be a good movie following Spider-Man 2. I mean, that is true. I, I love both of the first two movies, and for me, the second one is only behind the dark night when I would rank superhero movies. Like I, I adore that movie. Um, and I agree. It's hard to follow, but it, that's what makes it so disappointing that it was such a strong trilogy to start out with. And it just came to such a disappointing conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I mean to me and people can disagree with me, but I, I still find Spider-Man three better than any of the amazing Spider-Man movies. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair just because, I, lo- I mean, I had the connection to the characters from the earlier movies. Um, and I, I, you know, Tobey Maguire, I, I still love him as Peter Parker. So I think just the fact that he was in that movie, for me, puts it out over the Amazing Spider-Man movies, which just added absolutely nothing to the Spider-Man, uh, you know, universe to me. Yeah. No, no, no reason to dwell <laughs> on Spider-Man, um, since we are talking about Span- Stanley. Although he did create Spider-Man, so fair enough. Yeah. Good for Stan. Um, okay, okay, moving on. Um, let's briefly touch on what's been going on in the Schmodown. Um, we've had, I guess you could say, a, a lighter couple of weeks. We didn't even have a match this past Friday. Um, oh, disagree. Uh, we've had the finals of the Anarchy well, we, tournament. Yeah, so we, first of all, we have, I think we jinxed Lon Harris. That's all I'm going to say. Because last time we were talking about how you know great of a season he was having, how he might go all the way. And so first, we had the Ultimate Schmodown Singles Gauntlet, um, where he did, of course, beat Josh Makuga, but then went on to face Ben Bateman, and after an opponent's choice in round two, uh, the boss managed to take this match. Were you surprised at that result? You know, I was a little bit surprised, but what this match solidified to me about Ben Bateman... Oh, one, I'm a Ben Bateman. Everyone knows who listens to this podcast that I'm a Ben Bateman fan, and that I think I've I've always thought that he's a better player than his results have indicated. Yeah, and I think he's he's making good on that in kind of the end of year tournaments that are happening right now. And part of that is that, and what has conf- what this match particularly confirmed to me is that you know, of course, everyone knows that luck is part of this uh, as part of the sport is part of the movie trivia showdown. <laughs> And Ben Bateman got lucky, but not only did he get lucky, but he also like knows so well how to play this game, and he crushes people when he gets the opportunity when the game gives him the opportunity to. He's like he's so smart picking animated. Like that was a category that you know it wasn't necessarily clear that Lon had a weakness in. Uh, I mean, again, this is all yeah. relative, right? Because I think Lon's so good at animated. Probably he's he's probably average at animated. I should say it's not he's not bad at it, but like. Ben kind of like t- 
took a bit of a shot in the dark probably because he, he saw that, that Lon had struggled with an animated question in round one and looking at the board, you're like, well, you know, shoot, like I have no idea what Lon's actually bad at, right? And so he kind of took a stab in the dark um, and he went for it. And, you know, some of this might be coaching from, now, to be perfectly honest, from Finstock, from Bobby Gucci, um, because he's a great manager. He's probably one of the best managers of all time. I mean, yeah, What what is his record now? It's something like insane. I've heard it's like twenty seven and seven or something like that as a manager. It's something wow. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I but mean, the, you can't argue with results. Yeah, and anyway, but like I think that Ben Bateman, you know, his knowledge is finally, you know, showing a full speed. He's clearly a very good. He's a very good player in terms of knowledge base. Um, and when he gets the opportunity to be ruthless in these matches, he does it. You know, people talk about Sam Levine being the best player of the game, even if he isn't, you know, whether it, and it's debatable whether he's the best knowledge base in the game, right? But like Sam Levine could play the game. And I think that Ben Bateman can play the game and that you've seen it, you know, in the, in the Anarchy tournament with, um, you know, in, in teams with Mark Riley, you can see that he's a great partner and he can play the game. And then in the singles gauntlet, he, he beat, he beat Lon Harris not just because he got he was smarter on the day in terms of answering questions, but he beat Lon Harris because he plays the game better than Lon Harris does. Yeah, I mean I, I think that's fair, um, and he he got his uh, his victory in the sequel as well uh, because yeah. on Tuesday we had the ultimate uh, Schmodown teams the Anarchy Tournament finals between Who's the Boss and. Uh, the Harris brothers, yeah. And, like I'm not sure if this has ever happened in a title match before, but only made it three rounds out of five. The betting round was all who's the boss needed to demolish the Harris brothers. Yeah. Um, after a scores and soundtracks round that did not go their way in in round two, and also uh, Jonathan Harris was off off his game to be sure. Um, he he played really well in the first two matches, but. He was having some trouble with some of these questions um, in this match, and yeah. I think you know their inexperience may be caught up with them a little bit. But Riley and Bateman moving on now to to face the Shire Wolves. What what do you think about this matchup? You know, I think so. So much of this comes down to like this, uh, uh, even even this kind of finals of this tournament could have been totally different with different categories set. Right? It, it is luck. It is it is skill in the game, not just skill and trivia knowledge. And I think that the Shire Wolves. You know, you. I think you, it's an argument which team is stronger in terms of actual knowledge, um, but who the bo- who's who's the boss has shown that they are sharp. Not only is their knowledge good, of course, it's. In, I think it's undisputed at this point that their knowledge is great. Like Mark Riley, yeah. legend of the game, Ben Bateman. You know, he's been around for more than a year now, or even two years. Maybe I'm not 100 percent sure, but you know, he he is proven to be a player who has good trivia knowledge at this point. And ultimately, I think it's going to come down to just like this one did in some in some ways to who can play the game better. And the question yeah. is, can M Five, can the Shire Wolves keep? Or, uh, sorry, can M Five and, and the Five Club keep the Shire Wolves sharp enough? They you know they haven't played a match in a long time now. I haven't played forever. It seems like. Yeah, it's been a long especially time Rachel. since they. Yeah, it's and I was going to say that especially Rachel, who hasn't played since her semifinal loss to Mara Kanopic, I think. Or I mean, maybe the Shire Wolves title yeah. match was more recent than that, but it was around yeah, that time. And Clark will be playing in the ultimate shutout singles at least, but Rachel's yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it's a it's a big question mark because I think you saw Jason Inman coming back when he played Mark Knopic. He was probably a little bit rusty. He just had a lot of months off from playing the match, and it happens when you're when you're holding the belt. 
And I think a, a question a question about that is, you know, whether or not they will stay sharp. You know, I trust the Five Club based on what I know from everything, watching all the matches, that they will stay sharp, that they will have been practicing. But the question is, will they be match ready? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is what it's going to come down to. And, and also, you know, the wheel. I think the wheel is what, what costs Lon Harris in both of these matches. Um, and in, a, in these matchups where the teams are separated by such fine margins, I think something like the wheel can make a big difference. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be a great title match. I mean, narrative-wise as well, we have Mark Riley going up against his former partner, uh, Clark Wolf. So we should get some, some good kayfabe there as well. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, definitely looking forward to this match at the Schmodown Spectacular, which is coming up on December 21st. Um, before that, we are going to be getting the Ultimate Schmodown Singles Tournament, which only eight competitors um, this year. But, so, I mean, they're all heavyweights. It's going to be a great lineup of matches, starting with McQueenie and Andrako. We have Clark Wolf against Ben Bateman. Uh, we have Ethan Irwin taking on Chance Ellison. And the other match is between Stacy Howard Dan matches. Merle. That's right, Stacy Howard Dan Merle. So, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb here, and I'm gonna I know that you like Stacy Howard, but is she really a heavyweight? Um, I like Stacy Howard, maybe, but I don't know if I'd call not, her a short on heavyweight. Not compared to these other people, but I think when we're talking about the top players in the league, like there's no weak links in the tournament, is what I'm saying. There's nobody who like snuck in there. Like I mean, if Makuga had snuck in there, I mean I love Makuga, but like. You know, he. We would have had to say that he probably sort of uh, stands out from the rest of the bunch. I don't think Stacey Howard stands out that much because she has. I mean, she's beaten Mark Ellis, which I think is you know a very good win. Um, yeah. And she she's got a good record. So and and she had a good record in teams as well when she was with Brienne. So yeah. Um, Just this year, they, she hasn't done well in big matches. In big matches, yes, that is true. And I, I don't think she'll get past Merle. Um, but you know, stranger things have happened. People didn't think she would get past Ellis either in the uh, in the Ultimate Showdown last year. I believe that Ellis was came in as the two seed, and Stacy was like the fifteen seed, and mm-hmm. but she took him down. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I'm not gonna cast a stone. You know, stranger things have happened, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what she can do. I hope I hope she proves me wrong because I like Stacy Howard. She, I just don't think she's had. You know, she's got a good record, but I just don't think she's had a good year. I think that's fair. I think she started off fine, but. The last couple matches we've seen her in, she's she's definitely been a little outmatched. I mean, granted, she, um, again, she's faced she also faced Merle in the first round of Anarchy, which you know, right with, tough. with Winston Marshall at her, as her partner, who, yeah, who definitely felt, isn't the strongest, who but. isn't the strongest, and also I think even relative to Winston, didn't have a great didn't have a great game. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's that's what's going on in the Schmodown. Do you want to pick? Uh, do you want to pick your winner for the? Do we want to go through the bracket? Yeah, sure. So. That, that first matchup is a tough one. I'm, I'm going to go with Andrejko. Um, I think he's had a really good season. Um, I think he's going to be more match fresh. The last time we saw McQueenie play, I think was well. I guess he's been playing. He would play in Anarchy, but in terms of singles, the last time we saw him play was when he lost to Ethan Irwin, I believe, um, which was this tough, summer. Tough matches he's had. I, the, the guys, yeah. the guys had some tough ones this year. So I like Andrejko to win that one narrowly. I like Clark Wolf to move past Ben Bateman. Um, I also oh, like. Sad. I like Merle to move on, and I like Ethan Irwin. Even though I think Chance Ellison, um, you know, a star on the rise. I'm not sure if he has the knowledge base yet to take down someone like Ethan. Um, beyond that, uh, I'll take Clark Wolf to move on past Andrejko, and I think that Dan Merle will get there against Ethan Irwin. Um, 
And I think that in the end, I like Clark Wolf to win the um, win the tournament. I think she's had a great season. She was so close to, to winning that singles title in that marathon match against Sam Levine. Um, and I think she's going to get her chance again against Roca at the Spectacular um, by beating Merle to win this. That's crazy, man. So are you... Do you think that she's going to be holding both belts at the end of the year? I don't know. It's going to be tough because it will require her to play two matches at the Spectacular, right? Because both title matches are going to be at the Spectacular? Yep. Which is going to be tough. I mean, to be fair, Levine did it last year, but he didn't win the team belt at the Spectacular last year. Um, So it is a lot. And I mean, like, uh, Rachel Cushing... That's the reason why she chose not to play in the Ultimate Showdown singles, because she didn't want to, to be doubling up in the spectacular. So, I mean, it's not to say that Clark can't handle it. I mean, she's a very able player, but it'll be interesting to see if she makes it to both of these title matches. Will she suffer in the later match because of having played in the former? I think that's a good question. So, for me, I also have in Draco. I just I think really, really highly of him. Um, he he kind of had a slow start to the season. Not that he lost matches, but that he didn't play matches at the start of the year. I remember we kept yeah. talking. It felt like for months about like he's just not playing a match. Where is he? Yeah. Um, but he's really come on strong here in the back half. I got him over McQueenie. I have Ben Bateman continuing to drive through the singles tournament, beating Clark Wolf. I've got uh, Dan Merle over Stacey Howard, and I've got Ethan Irwin over Chance Ellison. So we're seventy five percent the same there. Um, and then in the second round, I have Mark Andreco. Uh, beating beating Bateman for the second time this year, I think. I think they play yeah. earlier this year as well. And then I, I have um, Ethan Irwin beating Dan Merle. And then uh, an Andreco-Irwin rematch, which I think will be another another match for the... Uh, another banger. Yeah. Another banger, and I think that... Uh, I think Ethan won't, won't lose a second time. I think it's just impossible, I think, to get two wins over Ethan in one year. Um, <laughs> just because he's such a strong player. But we'll see. You know, Ethan's cooled a bit since he had his really hot start to the year and i don't think that's necessarily his, any fault of his own he he had a not the strongest of partners in in the team tournament and they also had a tough first round match uh in, in the anarchy and so he he has had this he's he's had a, a couple month run essentially where you know he had a tough loss to andreka right it was a great match and then he also had this anarchy loss so he said he's had two his last two matches have been losses which have been tough but um yeah. i wonder if we'll see a and I'm hoping that we will see a, a rekindling of that spark that we saw from you know the very first match that he he played his debut match uh, earlier this year, and I think that'll happen. And this tournament will be that for him, and then and he, he'll advance to play Roca. And he needs it to get his um, his rookie of the year cred back because yeah. you know for a while it looked like he was a shoe in, but since he's dropped those two matches and since Mara has come on came on so strong in yeah. the. Intergeekdom. I think Mara is definitely the front runner right now, but I definitely think Ethan could, uh, you know, get the the impetus back if he uh, if he is able to perform well in this tournament and, and make it to that title match. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that you know, assuming let's just assume that Mara retains the belt at Spectacular <laughs> against um, against Kalinowski, yeah. does she get Rookie of the Year even if Ethan Irwin? Uh, supplants Roca and, and takes the title. So because, I think she would, yeah. Because she'd be undefeated. And I mean, yeah. she would have taken down every single giant that the Inner Geekdom division has to offer, including Inman, Cushing, and Kalinowski twice. I mean, she'll have to beat Kalinowski twice if she wants the title again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that she's absolutely, she would absolutely earn it in that case. 
Um, although I, you know, obviously Ethan very impressive as well. Yeah, and I, and I'll be really interested to see. I know I p- I picked him to lose in the semifinals, but I'm interested to see how far Ben Bateman can get. I, I think that he'll take care of Clark Wolf, and I think Clark Wolf will not be happy about that. But I think that this will it will bode well for the Shire Wolves at Spectacular to not have Clark Wolf to your point paying, playing two matches. Uh, but I'm interested to see you know if he can keep running as hot as he is right now. All right, um, moving to our final segment, which is news for this episode. Uh, we had another death in addition to Stanley, another another big name passed away uh this past week william goldman uh oscar winning screenwriter of classics like princess bride uh all the president's men butch cassie and the sundance kid um true legend <laughs> in the world of screenwriting um i believe he also authored some books on screenwriting that are that are considered very influential so definitely a big loss as well in the world of, of uh, screenwriting uh, princess bride's a cult classic bottom line i can't say i'm a member of that cult but it's a great movie, and and you yeah. know his work is inspiring to a lot of people, and, and you know captivated a lot of people in his time. Yeah. Um, speaking of captivating, uh, film Twitter was really captivated this past week by a trailer for a new movie that came out. Uh, I'm sure you saw this too, Scott. It actually played before um, Fantastic Beasts for me. Detective Pikachu. Oh my God. Thoughts. Yeah, you, you know it's been it's been some it's been the water cooler talk at work. Uh, this 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 trailer. I was actually at a, hanging out with some coworkers last night at a kind of poker night kind of thing, and it came up as a conversation topic. And it's this idea of like Detective Pikachu. Okay, so okay, sorry to, to back up a little bit first. Some people are outraged by this, yeah. <laughs> by this movie, and I think that these people don't understand one like the greater Pokemon universe, and then because this is a video game. It's a it's a video game that has happened already. It came out earlier yeah. this year in March uh, for the 3ds. That is this Detective Pikachu, exactly what you expect it to be. It's a it's a Pikachu that basically this character. This and from what I can see the trailer, it's very faithful to the plot of the of the video game. It, this is a video game movie, Scott. This could be the greatest video game movie of all time. We know we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I'm clear. Yeah, I don't want to dive into like what the plot of the video game is or whatever. But basically, Pokemon in the universe, like the the Pikachu that Ash Ketchum owns in like the Pokemon television show, is like not the only Pikachu in the world, right? Like there are other Pikachu in the world, and then there are also Pokemon living with humans and like outside this like island, you know, th- this world where you see like the Pokemon TV show and the Pokemon games exist. Like this is a wider Pokemon universe. Right, and so people are kind of outraged by like the like decrying like the sanctity of Pikachu is being like roiled by Ryan Reynolds um, <laughs> um, voicing it, which I agree. It's like very strange to hear Deadpool's voice coming out of Pikachu's mouth. Yeah, uh, which I'll, I'll give it that. But uh, I think that some people are are kind of up in arms for silly reasons. I I just think that they lack understanding of, of the context of this uh, movie and and then also the video game that it, that it's based off of. And then second, I think, uh, so, and then on the flip side of the coin, the only problem that I have with this trailer is that live, I've decided that live action Pokemon are creepy. Like, these guys, like, especially Mr. Mime, woof, that is a creepy, creepy thing. So, I mean, I'll admit, I'm someone who has absolutely zero, zero background in Pokemon whatsoever. Never watched the show, never played the cards, never played the video games. Like, I know nothing about Pokemon. Um, but with that being said, I think this movie looks kind of funny. Like, I think Ryan Reynolds is going to do a good job, and I won't mind, um, you know, next year when we're, we're going to be reviewing it for this podcast, I'm sure. Oh, there you go. Write it down, listeners. We're reviewing Detective <laughs> Pikachu on the podcast next year. No, I, I, I'm excited for this movie, too. I'm hoping... It's just like... 
I, I'm. It's it's weird because Winnie the Pooh earlier this year, Christopher Robin is like the the live action animals in that movie. I think aesthetically are very similar, but for some reason, seeing yeah. these Pokemon in live action was a little just a little disturbing to me. But you yeah. know, we only have to wait till May. This is this this movie could really <laughs> could be really unfortunate. This movie's gonna come right out around Avengers um, four, which it could oh my, yeah. it could take a dive for. I, I think Avengers might be coming up the week before it, but I think this movie really should get out of the way of Avengers. Yeah, I mean, I think everything should probably get out of the way of Avengers. Not Tully, yeah. though. Tully came out around Avengers. Great movie, but it didn't get <laughs> box office attention, that's for sure. It wouldn't have either way, though, so... No, probably not. Um, okay, so a couple episodes ago, we talked about the Gotham Awards as sort of being the first awards nominations of the season, and we got another set of nominations this week for the Independent Spirit Awards, once again, kind of like the Gotham Awards, um, more focused on indie movies, but some interesting nominations in the best feature category. This is, you know, their best picture. Uh, the, the nominees are Eighth Grade, First Reformed, If Beale Street Could Talk, Leave No Trace, and You Were Never Really Here. Um, you know, several movies. I mean, I've seen Eighth Grade and Leave No Trace. I know you saw You Were Never Really Here mm-hmm. in addition to Eighth Grade. Um, so, you know, a few movies we've talked about there. Um, this sounds like the this, like, super... High highbrow artsy fartsy, like movies that they've nominated. Like you're never really here is like one of those things where like you. I feel like the movie really asks you. I know we didn't. I actually didn't ever talk about it on the podcast, but I did see it. And this movie like really asks you just like don't think like this is this. It's a movie that's like we're really going for something that's really like complicated and like abstract. So like don't think about it too hard and just know that we did something really cool with this movie. That was like my problem with it. Yeah, but. Then you have movies like Leave No Trace in 8th Grade, which I think are very worthwhile nominees, um, and sort of move past that level of pretentiousness that maybe you're talking about that definitely some indie movies have. I haven't seen Leave No Trace yet, but I do plan on seeing it very soon. Yeah. Um, I I think it's out on VOD now, so it should be pretty easy to check out. Yeah, I'm doing Um, doing my end-of-year kind of mop-up. I I know I mentioned to you that I saw saw RBG, and then I'm going to see You Are Never... Sorry, Jesus, we were just talking about You Are Never Over Here. Um, gonna see uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor the documentary too so ah uh, yes very good um, in the acting categories for the indie spirits female lead no surprise we have Glenn Close for The Wife um, also Tony Collette Hereditary Elsie Fisher in 8th grade Regina Hall in Support the Girls Helena Howard in Madeline's Madeline and Carrie Mulligan in Wildlife which I want to see that one too it's showing at my indie theater right now um, I think <clears throat> looks very uh, compelling between her and Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, where and where is Melissa McCarthy in there? I don't know. Um, I noticed that Nicole Hollister did get a nomination for um, script, and also Richard E. Grant got nominated. But Melissa McCarthy, big snub. Where's even uh, with six six nominees, they didn't find her. Where's Charlize Theron? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they considered Tully, uh, you know, as a nominee, but I think. Very worthy nominee. Would have been a very worthy nominee as well. In the male lead category, we have Davi Diggs in Blindspotting, uh, Ethan Hawke in First Reform, Christian Malheros in Socrates, Joaquin Phoenix in You Are Never Really Here, and one the, maybe my most excited about a nomination, John Cho in Searching. Let's go. Yeah. Um, great to see him getting recognition for a movie which, unfortunately, while it is one of the best movies of the year, I don't think we'll probably get a lot of awards recognition, but definitely think John Cho is worthy um, in the supporting categories um, some you know highlights Thomas and McKenzie um, who played the young 
daughter and sorry sorry one moment just here i think searching like i don't know how this fits into the categories but if if searching doesn't get like best production design i'm gonna be disappointed because like the whole smart like editing or something like that yeah yeah like the smartphone and like um the cameras that they use for that i think there's got to be something where like searching just is like makes perfect sense to win the oscar i feel like you would you would think um but yeah so Thomas and McKenzie nominated for Leave No Trace in the supporting category. And then in the supporting male category, Adam Driver is in there for Black Klansman, Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Josh Hamilton also making it for eighth grade. Um, so, yeah, um, some some very worthy nominees there. A lot of movies that we talked about um, on the podcast. So we'll be interested. To Are these all see. indie movies? Sorry. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. So, you know, some other... I mean, I guess they considered searching an indie movie. Um, it was. I mean, it, yeah. it was, yeah. Um, definitely, you know, first-time director and mm-hmm. don't know how big the budget was. We're probably not huge. Um, I mean, it didn't have a it didn't have a big studio behind it, did it? I don't think so. I don't think so, yeah. I think that's fair. Um, yeah, so we'll be interested to keep an eye on, on those. Um, yeah, it was Screen Gems. Search, searching was done by Screen Gems, which is definitely an okay. indie studio. So. Yeah. Um, moving ahead, uh, Jack Reacher, uh, I, you may have seen this, but, uh, the Jack Reacher series, of course, based on the novels by Lee Child is going in a different direction. Tom Cruise, of course, played Jack Reacher in two films. Um, but they, he, they've decided to remove him from the role and they're going to be moving forward with a different actor and they're going to be moving forward with it as a streaming series instead of as a movie, which I think makes sense. There's a lot of, um, books in the series, so there's probably a lot of material they could use for a streaming series. Mm-hmm. And also, the major complaint with Tom Cruise, I mean, you know, I love Tom Cruise, don't know how you could have many complaints with him, but the character of Jack Reacher is described as very tall in the books, and Tom Cruise is not that. Um, so I think <laughs> this news, as good as Tom Cruise is, I think this news was not met with a lot of disappointment because they'll probably look for someone who more physically example, resembles um, Lee Child's character. I think you're. Forward. I think you're underplaying this. I think every news article that I read about, like that I saw about this, was that he was replaced because he was too short because of fan backlash or whatever. Well, I don't know if that's the only reason, but I mean, I don't. I don't know how well these movies really did at the box office. Like, I feel like. I mean, Chris McQuarrie was the director for it, so. Yeah, I, I mean, and I enjoyed the first film, but I don't know that. I feel like they were probably had big budget and may not have have done a great return on that budget. So um, just looking at the first film here. Um, fifty million budget, two hundred twenty million at the box office. Okay, well, I stand corrected. But the second movie, like, I don't even. I know that that second movie exists. I never saw it. Yeah. I don't even. I don't even remember it coming out in theaters. It, it. I think. I mean, it did, but yeah. I. I mean, I never saw it. I mean, the first one wasn't good enough to where I was like dying to go see it, and have just never caught up with it. Um. So finally, um, our final item. Pedro Pascal um, has been cast in as the lead in The Mandalorian, which, of course, is the Star Wars um, television series that is going to be coming to the Disney streaming service that Jon Favreau is doing. Um, not super familiar with Pedro Pascal's work. Um, he you know, has been in some things like Game of Thrones. Um, he was in the second Kingsman movie. He had a huge role in Narcos. Um, so I'm not super familiar with a lot of his 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 roles, but um, people who I've heard talking about this have spoken very highly of him. So I, you know, I, obviously as a, as a big Star Wars fan, I was planning to watch the series anyway. But 
I think this has increased my excitement for it. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, he's best known for Narcos, right? Like, definitely. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and then he, um, he also has had, he had a, yeah, he played one of the Martells, I think, in, in Game of Thrones, right? I think sure. I, I, think that, I think that's right. Um, I'm not 100% sure, I don't remember. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think that he was also, uh, I know that he's, <coughs> he has an undisclosed role in Wonder Woman 2, the 19, Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, okay. Um, we'll see about that. So he, you know, his his prospects look good in the uh, superhero uh, fantasy world moving forward. Yeah, nerd culture. Um, Let's get it. All right. Well, I think that should just about do it for this week's episode. Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. I'm at s shelton two zero one three over on Twitter. I've I've been a little bit more active retweeting about movies and and yeah, soccer so. uh, recently, so I'm gonna try to keep that up. I, I don't often tweet my my own <laughs> inspired creative content but sometimes i'll i'll retweet stuff and then also comment on some retweets as well and you'll find me at scarby dent tweeting uh praises on my alma mater which took down the defending national champions villanova last night at basketball it was extremely exciting um very proud of the the Furman team there so you'll you'll probably see me putting some more tweets out that about that out through the throughout the week um we hope you've enjoyed this episode of something like it scott if you have and you'd like to support the show don't forget about our patreon page but if you choose not to support our patreon that is okay too we would love it if you rated and reviewed us on itunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base and we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which god willing we will we will be reviewing creed 2 and the favorite for now i'm scott harvey for scott shelton we'll see you next time thank you everyone